So, <clears throat> I said when we began, you brave souls, you. Um, marriage isn't for the faint of heart, is it? Um, and marriage is one of these uh, daunting realities that we hardly know what we're getting into until we're really in it. Um, and what we want to talk about as we begin are some, some kind of basic challenges that we see as you make your way in, into marriage. <clears throat> Many of you are relatively newlyweds, you know. At least compared to us. It's a continuum. So it, um, and what we find is that one of the big challenges to start with when we think about our marriages is we come to the realization, but we start out thinking we know one another so well. <laughs> and then after two weeks, you're wondering how, how much you really do know, right? So one of the first realities that you have to deal with is you have to get past the illusion that you really, really know one another. And that really sets the trajectory of either learning or resistance. So the first challenge we face, we think, in our marital relations, there's lots of different challenges, but one of the key challenges is coming to this understanding that we really need to get past the illusion, and it is an illusion, that we really know one another well. Because the truth of the matter is, when we begin our journey, and even after we've been married for some years, there's a lot we don't know. Uh, the human soul is very complex and individual persons are very complex and the challenge of learning to know the person we're with is perhaps one of the greatest challenges we have. And to know that person in a way that's true, not predicated upon our projections of what we would like them to be, but actually what they really are. That's a big challenge. And we're gonna look at what it will take to really live knowing one another as persons in Christ. So that's the first challenge we have, getting past that illusion that we really know one another. I wanna talk about um, what I thought when we first were thinking about getting married. I thought, oh, this is gonna be so romantic and it's gonna be just the two of us nice quiet dinners, maybe candlelight dinners, and all this time that we get to be together and we don't have to say goodnight at the end of the evening. We can just be there together and go to bed together and do our day together and all this, it sounded just so exciting. Well, what I didn't realize is that actually when I was marrying Rich, I was actually marrying his family. <laughs> That sounds kind of strange, but what I came to realize is that it wasn't just him, it wasn't just his attributes that I loved and that I would be just marrying him. He was bringing with him actually a lot of baggage. So that's one of the illusions that we, we move past pretty quickly, I think, when we get when we're first married, that we're only marrying that other person. I began to realize there were traits in him that I heard other family members talk about. He reflected what his father was like. He reflected 
how his mother responded. He reflected their relationship and multiple other people in his family. Yeah. So, so we usually, we actually marry the clan. Mm-hmm. Because ours was, ended up being, a, ours was a blended family. We, we, had, we had children that were blending as well. And that was a particularly challenging reality for us. So, so when we get married, um, and, and this is really in a, in a profound sense, we're deeply, be, I deeply believe, we deeply believe that when we show up, we show up with the influence of two or three generations that have preceded us. By the way, that's why adult change is very difficult. I had a cl clinical supervisor tell me one time, you know, when you ever ask an adult to change, just remember you're asking them to change three generations or four generations of thinking, feeling, behaving, and remembering. It's an arduous thing for adults to change because we're not just bringing what we think is just ourselves. No, we're really bringing profound ways by which we've learned to perceive our world through what has been taught us. So we've got to get past just that notion that, oh, it's just her and me, or it's just him and me. Okay, so then after you get past that little bit of a hurdle, <laughs> <laughs> there's all the laundry and the dishes and the taking care of the children and the grocery shopping, the bill paying, mowing the yard, all those fun, fun, romantic things. And then maybe you even have more babies or you have some babies and you just, you keep going on with everyday life. So the romance kind of wanes off. Yeah. Kind of fast, a <laughs> little bit. And those are some of those illusions and expectations. Oh, it's going to be so fun. We get to do our chores together. Things like that. Well, maybe not. <laughs> we, I didn't realize, even as an older adult, that marriage was going to be so complicated. But... It's complicated, but you know what? It's also mm -hmm. wonderful. Yes. And it's wonderful in that it is one of the, I think, it is the primary way by which God has designed the human soul to mature. No human soul matures in isolation. Every human soul matures in relationship. And there's no more profound transformative relationship than a relationship of personal intimacy with another human being, especially our marriage partner. That reminds me, I forgot to say, and then there's sex. Yes, there is. Hopefully, you know, hopefully. Yes, and there's that whole adjustment to whatever we're knowing about our sexuality and how comfortable we are, particularly with our own bodies and what we were taught all about that um, in our families, which in many cases was nothing. And um, <laughs> then we, we learn along the way, right? And so we have these, it's just not for the faint of heart. We have these um, great opportunities and we have these great challenges that God gives us. So in light of that, we want to think in terms of some basic attitudes regarding approaching any topic, any time we talk on the topic of marriage. Because any time someone comes to a seminar on marriage, gets a book on marriage, or your spouse recommends that you read one on marriage, <laughs> it, 
it's usually because they're hoping you'll gain an insight. And it's, it's typically from a posture of evaluation. It's not uncommon to approach a marriage seminar like this and you sit there for a little while and then you start evaluating. And then you start judging and assessing and comparing. We'd like you to, we want to invite you to suspend doing that, okay? Because self-criticism, criticism of your spouse, criticism of your marriage is kind of a dead-end street, gets you into a cul-de-sac and you just go, go in circles. <laughs> we prefer the language of curiosity. And that's kind of a language that we get, we know really early on, most little people are curious, that's why they're not paying attention. They're really paying attention, but they're paying attention to what they're curious about. They're just not paying attention to what we think is significant. And we lose that along the way, primarily because of Western culture's functionality in terms of defining how to be a human being. But we want to invite you back to be curious. We want you to be curious about you. We want you to be curious about your spouse. And we want you to just be curious about your marriage. And the reason we're interested in you being curious as opposed to evaluative is because curiosity opens the heart. Curiosity is a posture of learning. Curiosity, in that posture of open-heartedness and learning, fosters connection and communion. And that's really why God had us get married in the first place, we believe. That your marriage relationship is a preparatory experience in learning about communion and connection, which is God's sole desire in our redemption that he should have communion and connection with us and we with him. So we want you to be curious. Have that attitude in our time together. What else do we want? To okay, do? another thing that we wanted to bring up. We have some four C's. So the first one was curiosity. The second one is commitment. Affirming our commitment with honesty and hope. That's what Rich and I are trying to do in our marriage. Your marriage, our marriage, it's designed by God. That's kind of cool to think about. The relationship that the Spirit of God uses in our marriages is for our transformation. Kind of repeating what Rich said with that the uh, curiosity piece. Now, our commitment with honesty and hope to our marriage is that it's part of our commitment to God. Mm. That we're going to have honesty with each other. We're going to have hope. But it's in God. Mm. It's in God that he's going to carry us through. Mm. It's not just about what we want or us doing it by ourselves. Yeah. There's this intersection I think we've come to know that when a relationship is birthed in and sustained in honesty. And we're gonna talk more about that. That honesty that has both a conviction that there's true hope, there's a reason to believe that we're on a journey of growth and transformation, 
and we're going to be on a journey of maturation, when we have that hope, and we do have that hope in Christ, that when that kind of open-heartedness, because curiosity takes us to open-heartedness, honesty takes us to open-heartedness. And so when we combine this honesty and this that leads to vulnerability with a sense of expectation that God's working, it becomes powerfully transformative in our very ordinary relationships day to day. And by the way, there's, there's a lot of ordinary in <laughs> our journey together, isn't there? It kind of moves us out of just thinking about ourselves and loving ourselves yeah. to thinking and loving the other person yeah. and maturing in that love. Yeah. The, other, the third C, so we've got this commitment to honesty and hope and curiosity. This third C, and this idea come, it came to me from Malcolm Muggeridge in his autobiography. <clears throat> and Muggeridge said in his late 70s, he said, finally, I have come to the realization that I've been riding a current. And the truth of the matter is, if you think soberly and honestly about your life, you come to the realization that you too, and we too, have been riding a current. And the current that we ride is the current of God's grace. And so, <clears throat> Western culture, again, is built on this need to be compulsively doing. <laughs> you know, we're, we're addicts. We're addicts around our functionality as human beings. We're not very good at resting. And one of the attitudinal dispositions that we would like you to have when you're approaching your marriage is the realization that by the grace of God, you and I, Sa Sally and I, are resting in the current of God's grace and God's going to get me there. I don't have to be so compulsively driven to fix it. Rather, I can be more resting in the grace of God and in my curiosity and honesty, I can be wondering about God's invitations. Now, I forgot to say this at the beginning. <laughs> See, whenever we start talking, we'll say a lot of words and you'll have a lot of thoughts come through your mind. But what we usually say when we do a seminar like this is we want you to ask God to give you one thing. Mm -hmm. And he will. He'll give you one essential thing. Because our deep conviction is adults can't change five things at any given time. It's too much. You take the kids, the job, the cars, all that kind of stuff, the dog to the vet, you know. It gets lost, but one thing you can attend to. So if you would, just take a brief moment and offer this prayer to the Lord. Lord, give me one thing that would mature me and mature us by your grace. Well, part of being in that current is we have to, I think, strive towards resisting that we would just uh, acquiesce or that we would retreat or that we would just pull back, we mm. would fall up. Mm. We, we are engaging in that current, mm. in that journey, part of that journey. And that God is working, keeping us in that current, in current. even when we don't really want to be. Yes. <laughs> or when we think we're not.
Yes, yeah. that's true too. So, so step forward, step towards, mm -hmm. step in, step up. One of the reasons that we really talked a lot about the current, even with each other, is there are so many things to deal with in marriage, and part of that is when hardships come, suffering comes. Um, we don't agree when that kind of comes. We can't come to a final uh, resolution of whatever's going on. We're still part of that current. So to be part of that current takes courage. That's your fourth C. So you, now you have curiosity, commitment, current, and now courage. Mm -hmm. Attitudinal dispositions. <laughs> yes. When approaching your marriage. Yes. I think that um, marriage takes probably more courage than anything else I've ever done in my life. Even, even having babies, even... Um, anything else that I could think of. If we wish to grow in our relational connection and communion with one another, I have to have the courage, I have to take the courage to step into it, to face what's ahead of us, what's, what's coming at us, and not to ignore it, not to step back, not to get out of that current that we were talking about. You're ste I'm stepping towards him. I'm stepping towards the things that I don't like, that aren't comfortable, that I don't really want to talk about. I know he's not going to agree with me on some things. I have to take the courage to step into that. I think that's really important. Yeah, I think the courage is not only about <clears throat> what we need to... Well, let me back up. <laughs> we need courage. I'll just say it plainly. We need courage because we're all afraid. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, we're all afraid of being deeply known. It's a condition from the fall, right? What, what happened with Adam and Eve? Um, they, they, they think they've got it all the life by the tail and they do their own thing. And then where are they? They're out, they're off. What are they doing? Hiding. They're hiding. And every single one of us learns strategies of hiding. And we're comfortable with those strategies of hiding. It's necessary that we have strategies of hiding. Because if we didn't, we wouldn't fare well. So when we talk about this courage, we mean courage to step towards one another about what may be between us, but also that I can have courage to let you know who I am that you can see me because I long to be seen and we need to be seen and heard and yet we're frightened. We have this primitive fear that faith invites us be strong and of good courage neither be frightened nor dismayed for the Lord of hosts is with you wherever you go. Even in your marriage step towards one another with courage. So Having courage doesn't mean that I'm not going to be afraid. I still may be afraid, and I may, may still find excuses to let things get between us. Our work, the babies, the children, the activities, the busyness of life. I have to get, I have to work in my courage to move past those things that could easily really 
keep me from him. Yeah, Sally is much more courageous than me. I'm very avoidant. <laughs> I'm always scared. If you know anything about the Enneagram, I'm a six. You, do you know the Enneagram? Yeah, you know, know the Enneagram a little bit? You know what six are? They're afraid, right? We're, we're scared of everything, right? We're, we're looking to hide and dodge and duck all the time. So, yeah, we, but so when we talk about this courage thing, we're, we're talking about something that's very real for us, eh? That we, that we be courageous. Yes. <laughs> so, what are, you th- what are you thinking? What are you noticing? Do you have any questions? Of what we said? About the challenges and the attitudinal dispositions. Would you add anything? We're good. Yes. Yes. Talking? Even thinking about being known in the moment can be pretty scary. It is. That's the truth. And all of us have learned really early strategies, and we want to talk about this. We have learned early strategies from our family of origin on how to navigate with that fear. That's fundamentally what we've learned early on. Probably by age 10, we've got it figured out. Who I have to be in order to be safe in my primary relationships. And my family of origin taught me primarily how to do that. Yeah, thank you. Good comment. Yes, sir. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah, and we've got some ideas that we're going to talk mm-hmm. about that I think are important that help us kind of rekindle curiosity. And there's one in particular, one, one thing that every couple can do that ha- is an amazing way to come to understand our spouse more fully. And we'll, we'll, we'll definitely talk about that. Thank you. Yeah, we can, we can make a lot of assumptions, can't we? we? We just operate out of this lens of perception that's loaded up with presumption. And that lens of perception is the way we navigate our world. Um, it's essential. God has given us this gift of being able to learn patterns. It's been said by one neuroscientist, neuropsychologist rather, um, guys that study the brain, women that study the brain, that the brain is a pattern-seeking organ. And when the brain lands on an organ that works, it's going to stick with it. The brain has an orientation towards habituation. And sometimes when we move in the direction of habituation, we move in the direction of presumption about our spouse. That's why curiosity is so critically important. So, other thoughts or reflections you have? Thank you. We want to talk a bit now, if we may, about the nature of God and the fact 
that God himself, which is unique to the Christian God, is a relational God. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He dwells in eternal beauty of love and righteousness. God lives in perfect relationship within the Godhead, fully at peace, fully in love, with purity of spirit. This God creates all things, and this God sustains all things. And you and I, each one of us, are made in this God's image. God in his essence is a relational God. And you in your essence, the essence of your soul, is that it is relational. Your spouse is made in the image of God. And the essence of your spouse is that he or she is relational. We are formed and we are shaped by our relationships. Identity, while our accomplishments are significant to a sense of significance in our identity, the core of our identity is not about our accomplishments. The core of our identity, and this is tricky for Western person mindsets to get, the core of our identity is anchored relationally. Do you recall Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian who was hung by the Nazis for his attempt to assassinate Hitler? When Bonhoeffer was in prison, I just got, this story came to mind. When Bonhoeffer was in prison and he was madly in love with his fiancee, he wrote a poem. And the title of the poem was, Who Am I? And he writes about different scenarios of his work. Is he a pastor to these prisoners? And is he a pastor to a j his jailers? Is he fundamentally this man madly in love with his fiancée? And the last line of the poem makes the point. For Bonhoeffer writes, Whoever I am, you know, O oh God, I am yours. That is the essence of who we are. We are relational at our core. And it is our relationships, as we said already, that foster our capacity to be in communion and connection with one another and with God. God is so relational to us, I'm just going to press this theological point a little bit because it gets to a very psycho significant psychological issue. God is so intensely personal to us, he says to us, when you come to me and you believe in me, and you embrace my son as your savior and as your Lord, and you submit to him your soul, then I, I shall come and I shall dwell in you and my spirit will be in you. That's not a metaphor, that's an actuality. God is this intensely personal that he is with us. 
Augustine in the fourth century said, I was apart from you and you were within. He's intensely personal within us and because of the intensity of his personal indwelling presence, he and he alone is the ground of who we are. He alone is our security. This is what the psalmist is after in Psalm 62, 91, when they talk about that God is our fortress and our strength. He's the one who is our protector and our shield. He is the one who is the ground of our being. He is the one who is our security and our safety. And for that reason, and that reason alone, you and I can live in our human relationships with a great deal of freedom. Because if we ground our sense of identity in our spouse, it will limit who we can become. Your, gra- your spouse, he- hear me now, your spouse cannot bear the psychological weight of their being the grounding of you. It's not possible. It's too much. And it can only contribute to frustration or aggravation or disappointment because what we want to say, and it's a key point, for us to thrive in our relationship as husband and wife, we must be grounded in the God who anchors our souls. Our spouse can meet some of our needs, but our spouse cannot meet our deepest need. Our spouse can meet some of our need for significance, it cannot meet the deepest need for significance. Our spouse certainly meets some of our needs for security, but our spouse cannot meet our deepest need for security. So here's a question that David Benner asks in his little book, Surrender to Love. If you haven't read that book, I want to encourage you to read that book. Surrender to Love. It's about the essence of what it means to do a journey with Jesus. And he begins his book, I'm paraphrasing it. When you think of God, just pause for a moment. Entertain this question. When do you think of God thinking of you? What do you think God feels? When you think of God thinking of you, what do you think God feels? That he loves you? That he's delighted with you? That he knows who you are? That you're in his grace? That he will keep you to the end? I'm kind of long-winded on this point. (laughs) Well, I was just thinking about that inner voice that I have sometimes that says, 
he should know what I need. I shouldn't have to tell him, right, ladies? <laughs> he should know the dishes need to be taken out of the dishwasher or whatever little mundane tasks there are. He should know Valentine's Day is coming up. He could get his flower order in right now, potentially. Potentially. <laughs> and so he has no excuse to say, he should, he should, he should, he should. He ought, he ought, he ought. He, he should be thinking about how big the box of chocolates will be for me, and on and on, those things. But the bottom line is, he really can't read my mind. I really can't read his mind, what he would like to have for, for Valentine's Day. He would probably like something else. Probably. A little more <laughs> romantic, maybe. <laughs> oh, dear, what can you say, you know? Some things just don't change, you know? <laughs> the nighty he gives me, it's not really for me, it's for him. <laughs> yeah, there's a pervasive narcissism in this whole thing, you know? Oh, dear me. But when I get frustrated, or I'm disappointed, or I'm even upset and really maybe mad that he didn't remember some of those things I think that he should have already known, he, he will always be behind the eight ball. There's actually no way he can ever possibly imagine all the things that I need or wish for or want. But, but God knows. God knows what my deepest desires are in my heart. God knows what is best in our marriage. Mm. It's that that faithfulness to remind myself, my inner voice, okay, maybe he's not perfect. He cannot fulfill everything I have and wish for and long for, but, but God can. God can in our marriage. Mm. And it's, that sounds kind of maybe cliche. We just pray more. We need to read the Bible more. We do a little book study together. We do those things. No, it's it's more than that. It's more than just those set, pat answers. Mm. That, that God is carrying us in his current. I like that, the term of current. Yeah. Because it means that it's continuing. Mm. As long as there's a current, it's going to continue. And it's going to take us with it. Mm. Does that make sense? That God will carry us on his current in our marriage and with each other. So I may still be disappointed and angry and mad and upset, but if I stop and reflect and stop and really look at the, the glue that, that binds our marriage, I can say, okay, God, take care of this. Maybe give him a little nudge to remind him what I need or want. Frequently. Or not. Frequently. <laughs> yeah. If that makes sense. Okay, I can't rely on him to fulfill it all for me and, and fulfill our marriage completely. I can't rely on myself to fulfill his every need. Yeah. Thoughts that you're having? Questions? How are we doing? Yeah. Marinating my soul in the love of God frees me. And you know what? It frees my spouse. Mm. 
but I can live with realistic expectations of salary. And of yourself. And of myself, yeah. Because I want to get to this piece here, just thought of this piece. I don't have it in our notes, but I'll take a shot at it here. <laughs> That's why we don't pass out notes, because Brandon and Emily know he never follows the notes. <laughs> That's good, though. God speaks to him in different ways. Yeah, you see, the significance, and, and this is something I can tell you that has been about, I'm 70 and about six years ago, this issue became so front and center for me that my, my life is hidden in Christ with God and the essence of my life is participatory communion with God. That's the essence of my reality. That's the essence of how I want to perceive my world. I want to perceive my world in all its ordinariness, in all its grandeur and beauty, especially my grandchildren. I want to see that world um, from the place of participating in the life of God. And when I see that world participating from, in the life of God, God's going to address three fundamental inhibiting emotions that every human psyche has. And the three fundamental inhibiting emotions that we all have are fear, I'm scared, shame, I'm not enough, and guilt, I'm not doing enough. Now, in the course of living in a fallen world, which we are in and we will shall be in until we meet our Savior or he returns and we meet him that way. There's a measure of guilt and fear and shame that are needed in order for the human psyche to be grounded in the real world. A person who has no fear will most likely end up killing themselves or somebody else. A person who has no shame, well, that looks like Panama Beach on spring break. <laughs> That's shamelessness. Not very healthy for human maturity. And guilt, without any guilt, what we have is a sociopath. So we need these fundamental inhibiting emotions to kind of rein in the human psyche. Their dilemma is, is that these inhibiting emotions, and it happens either one of these or a combination of them happens in every human psyche. One or a combination of them becomes exaggerated. And these exaggerated emotions are what restrict the soul and what lead to every defense mechanism the soul has, every coping mechanism the soul has to manage its journey. Exaggerated fear, exaggerated shame, or exaggerated guilt. And the great liberating power of the gospel and the great liberating joy of participating in this life with Jesus, participating in the life of God, is that we are lifted out of the exaggerations and we are lifted to a place of greater internal freedom so that we can delight in the presence of God and we can engage others without being restricted and limited and inhibited 
by a preponderance of feelings of being afraid so that you can never know me, or ashamed because I feel so utterly inadequate if you knew me, you would disown me and not want me, or guilt. I'm really, really that incompetent, and you really, really wouldn't want to hang with me. God liberates us from those realities, both in their protracted expressions and their more nuanced and subtle expressions within our psyches. So we say, and we urge you to kind of grow your life in this communion with God. He's the vine, we're the branches. The Spirit of God dwells in us, and he is, in fact, the true ground of our being. That frees us up. Um, yeah. I just asked if there were any questions. We're coming up on an hour. We usually take a break at the hour or so, but I'm curious if you have any questions or reflections or thoughts that you have. Is this, does this kind of resonate at any, does this resonate a bit? Yes. Okay. The great gift God has given us is this grace of Jesus, the grace of the Spirit of God to give us freedom in our relationship. Yeah. That's very good. And then you experience that guilt of feeling that way. That's what happens with me. I'm like, oh, I shouldn't be doing that. I, I love shoulds and oughts. That broken record in my mind. Sally has a high one <laughs> on the Enneagram. She's very moral. I'm very glad I have no one on the Enneagram. <laughs> Like, I will not walk across the street if I'm not in the crosswalk. I will not. <laughs> he That's threw not a problem. I grew up in New York. You can go across the street. <laughs> he uh, threw a little piece of paper out the window yesterday, and I about jumped all over him. <laughs> I was appalled. Just keeping her on her toes, you know. <laughs> making sure she's still there. <laughs> But then I, I have the guilt, Emily, for feeling so upset with him over those, what, I, what he thinks is a small thing. I think it's big, but, but, you know. Yeah, when we, it seems to me that when we have exaggerated expectations of our wife, and, and the dilemma for the person with exaggerated expectations of their spouse, 
they don't think it's exaggerated, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? They, they don't think it's exaggerated, but it, but it is. And the, the reason they have exaggerated, one of the reasons they have, there's multiple reasons, but I think one of the critical reasons a person has exaggerated expectations of their, of their spouse is because it takes courage, again, we're back to courage, to recognize in this adult journey there will always be some measure of incompleteness. Mm. Carl Rayner, the Catholic theologian, has made this simple statement, in this life there will be plenty of incomplete symphonies. And yes, there will be. And the truth of the matter is there will be incompletenesses in your spouse. And to be able, see this again, we come back to the grace of God in Christ. That when in fact I'm grounded in the grace of God in Christ, my wife's incompletenesses, Sally's incompletenesses and mine to her, become normal things that are part of the reality that form us and shape us and mature us. And what does it mature us towards? It matures us towards a greater surrender to the living Christ who I, my life is participating in. Because as I surrender to him, I make peace with my incompletenesses and actually with Sally's incompletenesses and those of our children and grandchildren. Because if I'm haunted, if you will, by a compulsive need to rectify and complete every incompleteness, I will be a person living in bondage, will I not? So there is this journey of recognizing that, again, surrender to the presence of God in Christ gives me freedom and liberty. One of the that things weight. that, one of the things that we've learned as we're getting older and older and older, and is, older, and older, is that it's <laughs> we're never finished with this journey of realizing our incompleteness. In fact, it's almost like the older we get, the more yeah. we can feel incomplete yeah. and the more we see yeah. the things that we need to work on. Yeah, it, it clearly becomes as we grow in age, chronologically, and I think also in maturity, mm -hmm. um, our incompletenesses become far more acute. And if You've got some years on you if you dispute that. I'd be glad to, glad to hear it. I, I think it's kind of a take on what C.S. Lewis said, that the older I get, uh, the more I'm inclined to see how bad I am. He put it in moral terms. And I think that's true. Because that's a truly good man and a truly good woman is they can, they can see their incompletenesses. They, they can see themselves very honestly. And again, that brings us back to this joyful place of thanks, thank you, Lord, that your spirit dwells in me and that my life participates in your Trinitarian life, which is our greatest joy. Yes, sir. Very good. Yeah, it always seems to be this balance, doesn't it? That one of the things we can do is move towards a position of passivity and apathy 
in our relationship and just say, well, you know, there's just incompletenesses. I'm incomplete, and you're incomplete, and my incompleteness becomes an excuse for not growing up, right? See, that's the challenge of this. It's the challenge of recognizing that we have all these incompletenesses, but God's not calling us to kind of choose then to become victims of our incompleteness, but rather to acknowledge them and honestly then live by faith <clears throat> into our journey of loving him and our spouse. That's always what's brought to us, isn't it? That we're called to love and to love wholeheartedly. Isn't it interesting that when uh, Jesus gives that great commandment, is it Matthew, is it love the Lord your God with all your, your heart, is it mind, soul, I'm, I'm collating here. <laughs> and, and I know it says strength. So loving is this invitation to exercise my strength even though I know, even though I know, I have real limitations. And so too does the person I love most in this world. We have real limitations. But it's not an excuse not to love with all my strength. Yeah. It's easy to say, you know that old saying that says, well, that's just how he is. I just have to learn to accept it. Or it's just how I am. That's how God made me. Well, some of that's true, but talking about this courage to step out in that current is, is moving past that, just settling, accepting. Um. Yeah, probably the person who's really tenaciously arguing, this is just who I am, <laughs> and you just have to get over it. You really need to push hard against that. Because <laughs> that sounds like someone who's rationalizing either a pathology or laziness, one or the other, you know? And we need to get after that one. Please don't hear us when we talk about riding the grace of God and accepting limitations, that we're endorsing a passivity and an acquiescence to that which is relationally unhealthy. We'll mm -hmm. never say that. But rather, we want to press in, and sometimes we speak truth and confront when things aren't as they need to be or should be. Yeah. Other thoughts or reflections? Doing well, let's, yes, sir. Yeah, I, you know, I don't want us to be too hard on ourselves. I think we all need to idealize our spouse else we never get married. <laughs> don't, have, have you, have you, you know, I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but have you noticed the delay in marriage amongst the millennials? And that when they, I've worked with a number, of, I hope I'm not offending anybody here. <laughs> 
you know, persons in their late 30s or 40s or 50s and they've never been married and they want to be married and yet they're, ex they're just too realistic. They need to be more idealistic because our idealism gets us to the altar. <laughs> they, you know, everything has its season, right? You know, of course. Youth, you, 20 year olds are to be idealistic. They're not supposed to be like me at 70, right? Kind of a little suspicious. I'm a six, remember? You know, a little suspicious, wondering what, what's really behind the curtain there. You know, heavens no, a 20 year old's just gone after it. Thanks be to God, that's what they're designed to do. Yeah, when they get the, they'll have plenty of time to wake up. Right? And thanks be to God that he gives us this gift. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah, we can... Yeah, well, I'll quit there. I'm uh, headed, I was, headed again. And I was thinking about how I was going to cut you off. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. Let's, let's take a break. Shall we do that 15-minute break? You need to stretch. It's Friday night. Welcome back. Another minute and we'll start. Thank you all. That was a short minute. <laughs> I just want to ask some great questions. Right, as we gather back, we always like to ask as we transition to uh, the next bit of material here. Um, are there any reflections or thoughts that you have that you would like to give voice to or questions? Okay. Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think what we're getting after is to recognize whether I'm extroverted or introverted or somewhere, someplace in between, I think God wants us to have a fundamental consciousness. When we say we want to have a fundamental consciousness that we participate in the life of God at a very profound level, in a level that's more profound than we know, frankly. It's more profound than we can ever grasp cognitively, mentally, even spiritually. It's much more profound. That he wants us to see because we participate in his life, fundamentally, we're relational beings. And as such, if I know I'm an introvert, 
I've got to remind myself I need to step towards my spouse, right? I, I need to step in and step towards because my inclination is to step back. Now, if I'm an extrovert, I may just have to sit down, you know, give somebody else some air in the room, you know. But it's learning. We're, we're going to talk about self-clarity. We'll get to it at some point, how important that is for navigating relationships. Yeah, it's, that's critically important. Good, good point, yeah. Other thoughts or reflections as we uh, do this last hour together? We doing okay? We holding up? It's Friday night. It's long day, long week. Oh, we've got some good stuff coming at you, though. Get oh, ready. Get ready. Hold on to your chairs. Sally's an extrovert. <laughs> I start clapping and cheering and yeah, there you all go. that. Roll, baby. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, I want you to hear this quote. I think it's really important and really revealing. Kurt Thompson, in his book, The Anatomy of the Soul, if you want a good read, that's a really good one. Mm -hmm. He states, research indicates that 80%, 80% of the problems, the relational problems we have in our marriage predate our knowing of our spouse. 80% of the relational problems in our marriage actually predate when we met our spouse. Isn't that good news? Ooh. That's just such good news. It kind of goes back to that, I didn't just marry him, I married his family, yeah. I married his, his well, if you want to say, baggage or blessings whatever clan. the clan <laughs> yes married the clan yes but there are five factors that influence our marriage and i want you to jot this down i think these are really important number 1 is the fall from adam and eve that that will influence our marriage point blank we don't have a choice about that yeah. number 2 our family of origin. You're going to hear us talk a lot about our family of origin yeah. stuff. And you didn't have a choice about that either. And you didn't have a choice. You didn't vote for your mom and dad. No. Number three, personal choices. This is part of what we've been talking about already, but we're going to talk some more about that. Mm -hmm. Personal choices. We do have the choice in those matters. Yes, we do. Number four. I have lots of choices on how I navigate your mother. <laughs> uh, you said you weren't going to go there tonight. <laughs> My mom just spent a whole month with us. It's the first time ever. So we got to experience some new, yeah. new things. <laughs> we sure did. <laughs> I think you got a little preview of how I'm going to be when I'm older, too. That's a good thing, isn't it? Okay. Yes, it is, honey. <laughs> <laughs> you said the right thing. That was good. Number four is our life circumstances. Yeah. Life circumstances. Mm. And five is our physical factors. And most of the time, we don't have a choice in those things. Yeah. When we talk about physical factors, we're... we're 
particularly interested in our gene pool. Mm -hmm. because, because all of us have a temperament. <laughs> and we didn't vote for our temperament either. It's a given. And I think the Enneagram is wonderful for this because essentially, if you're familiar with the different personality styles on the Enneagram, it's basically saying your style is indicative or your combination of styles is indicative of a particular temperament. Something you is contributed to primarily by DNA. That's how God created you. That's how God created you. Okay, in other words, the sorts of conflicts and the issues that we experience in our marriage mm -hmm. and the things that maybe we can't even really resolve, mm -hmm. we can't ever come to agreement on, they're already a part of us even before our spouse was in our life. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty amazing statement. We have found that when we're working with couples and and we work with couples all over the United States, actually all over the world. It's, it's been very interesting that we find it almost always, or maybe would you say always goes back to our family of origin stuff? Yeah, I'm, I'm something of a fatalist on this one. Uh-oh. Uh, I, I think it has all to do, I'm thinking of, of this couple overseas okay. uh, that we, we love dearly, but um, they, they literally fought a lot. I mean, I would say knock down, drag out. Uh, Screaming, yelling. Yeah, where, where it's almost, it got to the place after 10 years of marriage where it was almost insufferable for them to be in the same room together. Um, and they're overseas um, leading a very successful church. And uh, talk about how the soul gets wear, worn out it gets worn out when there's that kind of disparity between private world and public public life. Nevertheless, as we explored the story, it became clear that her rage and his withdrawal and passivity was anchored in her father's authoritative abuse of her verbally and physically. And his distant and detached family system taught him that the way you manage your world is that when it gets really rough, you just avoid most things, if not everything. So that's what we mean by when we say family of origin kind of contributes to mm -hmm. a definition. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I no, that's could, good. That's a good... I, that popped in my head. That's a great uh, example. But I'm thinking that we're, it's not that we're here trying to place blame, mm -hmm. and yeah, Rich good. actually really loves my mom, and she really loves him. But we're trying to recognize the influence and the impact and the importance of how we were raised. That was our normal. That became part of our implicit memory. And so if you have never heard of implicit memory before, it is actually the things that influence you that you are not even aware of, that you, they, it just happened around you. It influenced the way you think, the way you perceive things, the way you feel. And it could have been things that happened to you as you were growing up or even at things that have happened to you as an adult. 
that you did not realize the influence they had on yourself. Does that make sense? Implicit memory. It's not, oh, I remember that time when I got a spanking. No, it's about the things that we can't necessarily recall a specific event. Yeah, well, as one person, said, I think, said it, um, implicit memory is everything I learned as a child without having to pay attention. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. <laughs> I, this is the mic. <laughs> My, our daughter, Becky, uh, teaches preschool in Madison. Mm-hmm. And she, um, she's just a great teacher. She's, you know, if I had to do that, I'd probably <laughs> quit after four hours. Mm-hmm. But she's marvelous. And so she has this little exercise with this group of 27 three-year-olds. Three-year-olds, 27 of them in one room. It's amazing. And so it was this coloring exercise, you know? And Becky was talking to us about it. She said, somehow all 27 of them got into the coloring exercise. You know, and they were going like mad. And she said, it, the room was as, as quiet as it had ever been the whole year. And all of a sudden, one of the little, most petite three-year-old girls shouts out, oh, damn it. and Becky goes whoa (laughs) now I don't think anybody in this little girl's house said or got a whiteboard out with a magic marker and said if frustrated (laughs) and things aren't going your way the D word comes into play it's just what she learned without having to pay attention. That's implicit memory. And we have a whole host of implicit memory. Our implicit memory is kind of like a shortcut yes, to our thoughts and feelings. So some of our shortcuts might be, well, I'm never going to trust anyone. We may not say it, but we believe it. Something's happened in our past that has influenced us in that way. We can just have fun. We may not say it, although I do say it a lot. Let's just have some fun, Rich. Lighten up. (laughs) (laughs) But that's something I believe. I believe in the importance of it. Uh, She always has to be first. He always has to be first. Men only want one thing. <clears throat> it I'm will, not saying a word, so. I know. Thank you. It will always cost you. Why try? We may not say it, but I think it. Why try anymore? Might as well just give it up. It's not going to change anything. That is not possible. I could never do this. That was part of my implicit memory. I could have never, ever dreamed 10 years ago that I would come and be able to speak about marriage. Mm. Yeah. 
never, or get to actually even be with Rich in his ministry. Yeah. Implicit memory. Those shortcuts were formed from the way we observed our parents relating to one another, and I've heard Rich say this a lot. Stop and think about and share with us how your parents related to one another and what was the emotional climate in your home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really good. Thank you. Because I believe that the emo- we believe the mm-hmm. emotional climate in our family of origin is actually what led you to fall in love with your spouse. <laughs> what, what led you to be attracted to them? Mm-hmm. Because unconsciously, uh, you knew, implicit memory, that with this person, you could reenact that emotional climate. It seems far-fetched, but I think it's true. Um, let me give you an example. There's a couple came. You'll never meet them. <laughs> um, and they fought. Another mm-hmm. fighting couple. <laughs> um, <laughs> duking it out. And they came weekly. They need to. Probably a couple times a week. But they would sit down and say, well, I'd say, what did you notice? Well, we had another fight. Another fight. What was the fight about? And I kid you not, week after week after week, they discussed for 20 minutes trying to figure out what they were fighting about. And that's fine, because they were just paying me, and I could be quiet and not have to think too much. (laughs) But the reason I believe they were fighting was guess why? Because in their implicit memory, that's what they learned in their family of origin about navigating your closest relationships. In her marriage, there was always arguing, in her parents' marriage, there was always arguing and fighting 24-7. Now, it may not be as overt as that, but I have a hunch. I have a hunch that most things that get us stuck in our, mo- in, our, in our marital relationships, relationally, have to do with our implicit memory. It has to do with that early emotional world that we learned growing up in our family of origin. And one of the most significant things we learned, and we're going to spend the rest of the evening on this because it's so critically important, One of the most fundamental things we learned and the most significant thing about relationship that we learned in our family of origin is how and how much to trust another human being. You didn't learn that in college. In fact, some of the clinical literature indicates that you and I learned how to trust by age 16 months. That primitive pattern of trusting is in place. 
It's uh, John Bowlby, Karen Ainsworth, and many, many others since then have explored this whole notion of attachment. If you're in the medical field, I'm sure you've heard in pediatrics there's this diagnosis of failure to thrive syndrome. And I can remember when I was getting my doctorate degree in psychology and I was positioned at Christ Hospital in the south suburbs of Chicago and my supervisor sent me up to the third floor and I would sit there for hours and rock little Keith, who was a cocaine baby, who had failure to thrive syndrome, who would take nourishment but was dying. And he was dying because there hadn't been established an adequate emotional attachment. We learn how to do emotional attachment by 16 months, and then we learn real sophisticated ways to navigate that fundamental implicit memory pattern as we mature and grow up. And that is fundamentally about how we go about trusting. And by the way, just FYI, there's only four attachment patterns. <laughs> This isn't rocket science. There's only four of them. They're not endless. Here they are. The first attachment pattern is the avoidant attachment pattern. And in an avoidant attachment pattern, the experience of the infant is that they find the parent unreliable emotionally. And because the parent is unreliable, then primary caregivers are unreliable emotionally. In other words, they're not adequately nurturing their little person. That little person makes a decision to pull away and draws a conclusion in a very primitive sense. It's not a cognitive conclusion because cognition really isn't online. But it's a very primitive emotional conclusion. And the conclusion is this. I can trust me, but I can't trust you. And we'll find that play out in many marital relationships in which fundamentally the person has always has a reason not to engage. There's always some significant matter that's at hand. Always some maybe challenge at work or um, crisis in the family or uh, extended family or something, or uh, the playoffs. <laughs> That's a pretty good reason, you know. <laughs> the, the playoffs, yeah. That we end up avoiding the necessary trusting that our relationship is inviting us to. The second attachment pattern is called ambivalent. And in the ambivalent attachment pattern, it's formed by the child experiencing a measure of nurturing, and then it's withdrawn. So there's a measure of nurturing that seems to excite the child and enliven the child, and the attachment begins, but then it's withdrawn, and the child ends up with a psychological experience of wanting more, that that's not enough. And so instead of pulling away and withdrawing, this little person ends up with an exaggerated need for more. And the exaggerated need for more shows up in our adult relationships through the common parlance word that we call co-dependency. 
Codependency. The codependent person is operating from an attachment pattern of trust in which it's never enough. I always need something more. It's a dependency on what others think, feel, or need. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. The third attachment pattern is, or did you want to say more? No, I wanted oh. you to do that. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. The scattered attachment pattern. It says, I don't trust you, but I also don't trust me. It's kind of the uh, household or the situation where mom or dad's not reliable. They sometimes are there, sometimes they're not. Mostly not. Mostly not. Sometimes um, they respond to me or they're present to me. Sometimes they're not, maybe mostly not. You cannot, as a child, that's part of that implicit memory. You don't learn to rely on their presence or their love or their guidance mm -hmm. so you you don't know what what to do with yourself even you don't trust yourself either when you reach out it's going to be it was going to be scattered mm -hmm. yeah it plays out where the person the nature of the relationship is the person is kind of all in you experience it, they're all in, and you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. You know, it's you're just all in. And then maybe a week later, um, they're all out. And they're blaming you for being such a terrible person. It's very, very difficult for persons with scattered attachment patterns because of the capriciousness of the experience of trust. And then finally, there's a stable attachment pattern. The stable attachment pattern is the pattern that emerges when a child experiences reliable, loving, and nurturing. And essentially, they say, I trust you and I trust me at a very primitive level. This whole notion that, and by, by the way, mo most persons uh, here have fundamentally, you don't come to seminars like this unless you have a relatively stable attachment pattern. Um, and maybe have a measure either then of avoidance or ambivalence, but fundamentally it will be stable. So in case you're wondering what you might be, I just <laughs> wanna give you some assurance, you're, you're okay, and don't worry about ruining your children. You'll be, they'll be okay too, love them, love, love, just love your kids, they'll be fine. They're really, really resilient. Um, so whenever we teach this, usually we have about five or six parents come up to us and say, I think I'm ruining my kid, you know. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> We're not trying to say that. Just by the fact that you're here tonight and you're learning and you're being intentional about yeah. growing your marriage is huge right there. Yeah. Huge. Trust is the currency of all human relationship. Trust is the currency of all human relationship. What makes relationships go is this fundamental experience of being trust of trust and intimacy if you will is an experience of open-hearted trusting that's intimacy intimacy is an experience of vulnerability and what's this vulnerability but a willingness to kind of relinquish to you to make myself known to you which is the journey of trust and so I had to learn to trust rich 
Like he said, we have a blended family, so we both came in with a lot of baggage. And so as I began to build trust in Rich, there were some factors that we realized had to be addressed. And when you come out of a wounding, uh, and all of us have those woundings, but some deep woundings, it is even harder to find that trust, especially in a spouse that you've, you've said, I'm going to live with him the rest of my life. Oh, my Lord. What, what is that? You know, how can, when you think of the reality of it, you, it yes. So I, there were some factors we yeah. came up with, but were you going to add more? I was going to give, I'm going to illustrate me. I have, a, I think I have a relatively stable attachment pattern with a, a real pronounced avoidant dimension. <laughs> and I, I think I know why. I know why, because my father was an orphan. His father had died three months before he was born, and his mother died the day after he was born. And dad was on the streets when he was 14, making his way. His world was really untrustworthy. And he had to learn to do it himself. So he can say, I'll trust me, but never on this side of heaven or hell am I trusting you. That was part of his DNA. And my mother was from an immigrant family, first generation immigrant, came through Ellis Island, moved out of Brooklyn, New York, to upstate New York. And mother left her family and left the farm to go be a housekeeper and they put her in culinary school. We ate well, I want to tell you that. She was put through culinary school, and she was a private chef for a Jewish family in Albany, New York. And she did that for a number of years. Um, she also had polio. One leg was shorter than the other. She had a great amount of shame. And she, too, had an avoidant attachment pattern, born out of a great deal of insecurity. My sense of needing to avoid that, even to this day, is quite acute is born out of that family system in which I learned an implicit memory. The way you navigate your world is you keep it at arm's length because one of the things you can do is you can learn to trust in here to figure it out. And you can figure it out. We had to figure it out. You can learn to trust in here, but it's tougher to trust out there. So I fell in love with Sally. <laughs> And Sally's a person who, in some ways, can I share, has, we were talking about this, uh, has a bit of avoidance, and I won't tell you all the reasons why. <laughs> she can do that if she wants to. But um, Sally also has this ability to lean in in a way that I don't. And for that, I'm very grateful. What we're getting to here and what we're trying to press for that to grow in your marriage relationships, we want you to, we seriously invite you to reflect upon what formed your notions of trust. Because your capacity to trust and your way of trusting will give definition to how you show up in your marriage relationship. Because intimacy in marriage is about the journey of vulnerability, and that's open-hearted trust. But you're going to, I was thinking, as you're trying to 
figure out that trust in that other person. Your Part of your homework for tonight, and yes, there's a little homework. I was a teacher. I have to always have homework. That it's for you as a couple to talk about and look at those attachment patterns again and just have a little discussion because those attachment patterns and recognizing them just like Rich did in telling about his parents, that helps him inform him about his trusting and what he needs to work on or what I can help him with yeah. and vice versa. Does that make sense? That connection of that attachment pattern with your ability to trust. So what we want to do <clears throat> at this juncture is we want to suggest ways by which we build trust in our relationship. And we're going to give you eight essential ingredients for building trust in an intimate relationship. And by the way, this isn't, this is rather simple what we're going to say, but I've always found in the journey that sometimes the simplest things are the most challenging. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've discovered that along the way. Um, so number one, be reliable. Which means be trustworthy. To build trust, you need trustworthy people. I learned really early on that this was a huge factor for Rich. Yes. If I said I was going to be home at five or if I said dinner would be at five, boom. He was watching his clock and he was expecting me home at five or maybe even a little bit before would be even better. Mm -hmm. It was hugely upsetting for him. Yeah. And in my family, we didn't ever look at a clock. We didn't even know what time it was, hardly. <laughs> so, Amen to that one. That was one of our first conflicts, actually. Yes, it was. <laughs> that he felt like I was being untrustworthy. And I'm like, well, it's no big deal. I'm 10 minutes late. Yeah. Or dinner will be in 45 minutes. No, he was prepared and ready to eat at 5 o'clock. Yeah, so what I have in my notes under be reliable, I have here keep time commitments. <laughs> uh, I hope I'm a little more flexible. <laughs> that was your Maybe first not. example. <laughs> uh, but, it, but it is true that if we make verbal commitments around um, time or we make verbal commitments around a task or we make verbal commitments that we're going to be somewhere, and we chronically are not. Mm -hmm. We show ourselves to be unreliable. And, reli and, and reliability, particularly showing up when I say I'm gonna show up, that pattern of showing up is the very thing an infant child mm -hmm. is attending to. I forgot something really important. I know, I just thought of it too. You know what? You tell me what the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ is. What does Jesus say? What's, what's the gospel say? If, you, if we want to enter into communion with God, what must we do? 
Thank you. Trust him. I find it incredibly fascinating that the gospel of Jesus Christ is predicated upon the very first task an infant must learn. And that is, trust me. That's so powerful. That when Jesus invites us into communion with him, he intends to restructure every single one of us in our capacity to trust. So he says, trust me. And when he does, it just, it's amazing this wisdom of God that he reenacts what wasn't discovered as the foundational means that navigates the development of a child's identity by Bowlby and Ainsworth in the 1970s, which was this whole matter of attachment. That now by guys like Daniel Siegel, these near, near neuropsychiatrists, and uh, uh, Kurt Thompson we've write, written about, and met many others now are arguing for this fundamental psychological structure of attachment, which is fundamentally learning to trust. And the gospel says, yes, that is what it's about. Foundationally, it's learning about trusting. So trust me, it says Jesus, and in that trusting, you'll learn to do intimacy, way, intimacy well. And by the way, I've got this design, this thing, it's called marriage, and you enter into it, and you enter it for your life, and along the way, as you're trusting me, you're trusting your spouse, and as you trust her or him, you're learning as well what it means to trust me at a more profound level. Trusting. So be reliable is number one. You have to be <laughs> yeah. number two. That's the point I forgot. It's such a key point. Okay. Ah. Good. I'm glad you brought it up. So keeping your promises. Number one was being reliable. Number two is keeping your promises. And it can be as simple as when I say, i promise that I will do this errand for you or I promise that we will have date night next week I promise that whatever it is I come up with that I do what I say and also that Rich does what he says what he promises to do keeping your promises it's pretty simple yeah let your yes be yes and your no be no. Kind of thing. Mm -hmm. The third thing that we talk about is tell the truth. Mm. Tell the truth. Because lying undermines trust. And that includes mm. white lies. <laughs> yeah. I, I think um, most, most persons in marriage are, are not overt liars. <laughs> they just omit some of the information. <laughs> Especially around money. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's easy to omit. Because truth-telling in a marriage relationship will always move the soul again towards open-heartedness, doesn't it? We, again, 
Truth-telling is so important <clears throat> because the alternative is we can practice being hidden away. We can practice hiding away. And if we practice be hid, being hidden away and we practice hiding away, it's very, very difficult for us to mature as individuals and therefore to mature in our most significant relationship as husband and wife. So tell the truth, be tenacious in telling the truth. Hold yourself accountable to tell the truth. Even if it's painful, tell the truth. All right, number four, willing to apologize. That means asking for forgiveness. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I hurt you. It's not asking for forgiveness because you, you just messed up and you are mad at the way they're reacting to your mess up. You're apologizing and asking for forgiveness, truthfully, honestly. There's, a, there's some research that shows that and for those of you who have children, this is kind of uh, encouraging, I think. The research says that just the sheer act of asking your child for forgiveness when you mess up, I don't know why I'm pointing to Rich, but uh, I meant, <laughs> I but, but the sheer act of asking for the forgiveness is more of a connection with your child or I guess maybe it could even be with adults, than as if you had never ever messed up in the beginning. The act of the asking of forgiveness. Yes. Yeah, the clinical literature is saying that to ask for forgiveness fosters intimacy mm -hmm. more significantly than if the parent had done it correct the first time around. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? And I think it's true in our adult life as well. That when we can honestly come to our spouse and ask for forgiveness because we're owning who we are, that if our, our spouse is clear-minded in their own journey of faith, it may take a season depending on the offense. But nevertheless, it will be a journey towards deeper intimacy than prior if they had done it correct the first time around. Okay, so I know we're supposed to take turns, but will you yeah. let me talk about the next one? You may. It's start. my favorite one. Is it? I just realized. Okay. Staying focused in a conversation. <laughs> Staying focused means... Where's your phone? You put your phone in your pocket. You put it away. Rich, I'm sorry to confess this and say, uh, reveal you, it. Are you confessing I'm for confessing me? for you. Oh, okay. <laughs> Feel free, honey. He really truthfully believes that he can look at his phone and read his emails and his text messages and still hear me and still know what I'm saying and even respond. So... It's, um, yeah, I just, uh, yeah. it's kind of frequently I'll say, Rich, are you hearing me? 
Oh, yes, I am. You just said whatever. I said, no, I can't tell that you're listening to me. I can't tell. So I know we're all addicted to our phones and our iPads and our computers and our technology, your gaming, your TVs, your whatever. Mm. Put it away. Put it away. Yep. That, there is no better way for Rich to build trust in me than him to stop and give me eye contact. Look me in the eye. <laughs> okay? Yes, yes, yes. It's kind of simple, but it's huge. It's important. Yeah, it is. I, I remember we were in Lake Tahoe working with a church up there. So we had a treat. We got to go to this spectacular restaurant out on the lake. And it was the sunset. This couple, they had managed to get a table right on the deck. The sunset, the lake a beautiful meal, candlelight. Rich and I were there. I watched them the entire meal. I don't think they ever said one word to each other. They were looking at their phones. I thought, how sad. I, I commented on it to Rich at the time even. Okay, enough said. Reclaiming conversation in a digital age mm-hmm. by Turkle. Oh, yes. Is the book to read about these little devices. Mm-hmm. And uh, Turkle mentions in this book, even the presence of the phone on the table at dinner will change the conversation. It's a distraction. It's a distraction. Actually, what, the, what these little devices are doing, this is with millennials, but I think it impacts everyone. It's making it, it's redefining the nature of what we mean by human relationship. They did a a study with these college students who would sit at a table much like this. And millennials preferred to text their friend across the table (laughs) than to have a dialogue with them without their phones. And the reason they preferred to have their phones to text is because it was less anxiety provoking. You see, what our devices do is they move us towards a more isolated way of perceiving reality. And when we know about human engagement, and particularly marriage, you know, Sally sometimes shows up with the most surprising questions at the most inopportune times. That's true. <laughs> right when used, uh, the Tennessee is defeating whoever they defeated. I can't remember right now. You know, it was a good game. <laughs> but S- Sally has these questions then, you know. And our devices, our devices can get in the way of managing the to and fro of just ordinary relationships it becomes more anxiety-provoking to have an actual human relationship when we're inordinately disposed to attend to our devices. So at the dinner table, please take your devices and put them some other place out of sight. Don't think that it can be in your pocket on vibrate. It won't work. That vibration, you cannot hardly resist the temptation to pull it out and glance and see what it is, right? Oh, another... Hey, this one's free. Uh-oh. This is on parenting. This is out of Purdue University. Oh. And it had, had to do with 
um, little people and how little people are more adapt to more apt to succeed on um, academic achievement tests, less inclined to be addicted in their uh, drug dependent, uh, less inclined as well, or more inclined as well to be socially adept in conversation with one another and be able to navigate the to's and fro's of human relationships, have dinner four times a week together as a family. That's the it. study's called Success. If you want to look it up, Google it. It's, a, it's actually highly researched, and it was, yeah. it was cool information. Because you're building trust. Yes. You're building trust. Yes. Yeah. Be willing to apologize. Focus on the conversation. Focus on your time together in your marriage or your family. And number six, commit yourself to live authentically. Be yourself. Share your emotional world. Show up with whatever you are or whatever is going on inside of you. And to be curious. Yeah, be curious. Be Even curi be curious about yourself. Yeah. Not just the other person. Exactly. Um, it's, you know, in our world, in, we in Western culture, this culture is, is, a, is a culture of posing and posturing, isn't it? Isn't it? It's really a culture where we're in, we can get into this kind of image making and we can, we can believe that our image is actually who I am. And when we are married and we're home together, whatever the image might be out there can kind of dissipate and we're, we're left with something else other than that, that image. And so we want to invite you to commit yourself to live authentically with your spouse. Show up with what's going on and be curious about what's going on in your world. Talk internally. Talk together about what's happening internally within you. You can do seven. <laughs> talking about your day. This is one of my favorite things. Now, it means talking about the good, the bad, the ugly. But I will tell you one thing I've learned. Learn when it is a safe time to bring up certain things with your spouse. Okay, I learned the other night it was not a good time to talk about some issues we needed, some decisions that need to be made right at the end of that, that game, that basketball game. Football game. Or a football game it was. See, I didn't even know there was a game on. <laughs> I'm like in there, I'm, Rich, I need to know, da-da-da. Oh, wait, you know, and he's not looking at me. He's trying to be kind, I think, but not saying anything. Learn when your good time is. If you're a night person or you're a morning person, I know I could bring up anything with Rich in the morning. He's good to go. He's responsive. He's open to me. That's when I want to ask him, you know, can we go on a vacation or those things that I really want. He's more loyal. <laughs> <laughs> If I ask him about going on a vacation at uh, maybe, say, 9 o'clock in the evening or later, I'm doomed. <laughs> we will never go on a vacation if it's based on that time discussion, okay? So I'm just saying. Yeah, know your time. Know, what know time. your time. Yeah. Talk what time about your it? day. Know what time it is. Yes, take care of your conversation. Yeah. But share it. It's share simple, it. Way, simple ways to build trust. Mm -hmm. And finally, we would say this. Express gratitude 
to your spouse. Because if you don't, who will? Express gratitude to your spouse. Find things for which you can be grateful for what your spouse does and who your spouse is. And try to do that daily. Um, my, my verse for most of 2019, and the Lord hasn't seen fit to let it go, is this 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. That's pretty direct, and God's kind of hit me with that one. To learn to live from a posture of gratitude. Did you know grateful people are healthier people? They're less inclined towards heart disease and also less inclined towards autoimmune diseases by being grateful. Being grateful is a way by which your spouse can hear that you're attentive and that you appreciate who he or she is. Again, I want to say this. If you're not saying thank you to your wife or your husband, who will? Who will? Who will touch your spouse's heart in the most significant and profound way other than you with a word of gratitude for maybe just something simple she has done or that he consistently does week after week and month after month and year after year. I always say, it's when I'm talking with young wives that are thinking and figuring out how can I uh, change some things in my husband, <laughs> they, I say focus on what he is doing well that you do like and you do appreciate and you have gratitude for it's kind of like you do that with children and you do that in education you try to look for the positives instead of just uh you know focusing on the negatives yeah. i think about that when i talk think about gratitude good questions that you have how are we doing doing okay hanging in there good we're done. Thanks be to God. Unless you have a question or a comment. Or a reflection. Don't forget your homework tonight. Yeah. Yeah, there's, a, there's another little question you could actually ask. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe you have, but be intentional about this question. What was it like growing up in your family of origin? What was that like? Maybe you don't want to talk about it. And if you really don't want to talk about it, that's probably a good reason why you need to talk about it. Well, we're done a little shy of 9 o'clock, but um, this is our presentation for this evening. We're thankful for your presence. We hope we've proven that it's a bit profitable for you. So you'll be inclined, snow and ice, to return tomorrow morning, you know, and, 
And a little, a little commercial for tomorrow oh, is yes. we're going to be talking about moving toward relational intimacy. It's going to be good. Yeah. And also another commercial, um, Crosspoint Ministry is holding a relational soul retreat. Um, we've written the book, The Relational Soul, and we'll be doing a retreat March 12 and 14, if you're so inclined. It's the um, first one ever that's just the relational soul. Yes. And also we're doing an Enneagram intensive training, if you would be so inclined on that, on the weekend of March 27 and 28. It starts Friday afternoon at 2 o'clock and concludes Saturday afternoon at 3.30. 4 o'clock, that's the Enneagram, March 27th, 28th. The relational soul retreat begins on a Thursday afternoon and ends on a mid-Saturday afternoon. If it's something that you would be interested in, you just look at the Crosspoint website. It tells all about it, and you can register there. We don't even deal with that kind of thing. Yeah, we just, we just do the we, promos, and then somebody else does the work. Um, <laughs> uh, well, you'll be presenting. Yeah, well, we will be. Yes. Yeah, we will be, yeah. Yeah, I think I'll be there. Well, hey, let's close with a prayer and give thanks to the Lord, shall we? Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us that you've given us this time to do some reflecting and be curious about the relationship you have led us to in your grace and kindness. We pray that you'll give us um, hearts that are open-hearted and that you will give us hearts that are willing to learn, recognizing that in learning to love our spouse well, you're opening our hearts so that we may perceive you, experience you, and love you even more profoundly. Thank you for the great gift of our spouse. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. <laughs>
Would you kindle within us a deep heart of love for our spouse and for you? And we thank you again for your goodness to us in so many ways. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, <clears throat> we're going to do a bit of review. So Sally's kind of going to quickly review those attitudes that we talked about that are really important. And then we're going to do a brief summary kind of of our biblical theological perspective and make some emphases there that we didn't quite get to last night. Okay. So you're good to go. Like all good teachers, we will have a little review. And I want to see if you can remember. Remember those four basic attitudes? They all started with what letter? C. Yeah. Okay, what was <laughs> the first one? Can anyone remember that? Curiosity, I heard it. Curiosity instead of judgment. It's an invitation to be curious about what our attitude is. It's not an assessment, it's not a judgment, but it's just curiosity, okay? Curiosity is a mindset that fosters growth. It is the mindset of being open and of learning. Okay, number two. Commitment, good, guys, you brought your notes back, it sounds like. <laughs> Commitment with honesty and hope. Those are some key words, honesty and hope. Honesty itself is an invitation to, you remember that word? It starts with a V, vulnerability. Honesty is about vulnerability. It's being truthful, it's being authentic, it's being honest about ourselves, not just about what you're doing. Good. <laughs> All right, and number three, current. Good, good, good. Whatever is in our lives, God is using it to teach us, form us, mature us. Nothing is wasted in the economy of God. Nothing. It's all part of that current. All right, fourth. Yay, courage. You guys are good students. Marriage takes courage. I was talking with one woman this morning earlier and we were both agreeing marriage takes a lot of courage it's hard it's hard it's challenging if we wish to grow in our relational connection and communion with one another it will call for courage okay all right now when we begin from a place of curiosity number one Commitment marked with honesty and hope, as well as a deep trust that our lives are being lived in the current of God's love, so we can step out in courage. <laughs> All right, yeah. your turn. Well done, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we also wanted to make, we made an emphasis about the nature of our relationship with God and we started with the very nature of God himself as a relational God, didn't we? We said God is a relational God because he's a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We also made the point that you and I have a relational soul. 
that human thriving is predicated upon the quality and character of our primary, in fact, all of our relationships. We also alluded to, but didn't quite emphasize adequately, that we not only have a relational God and a relational soul, but we have a relational gospel. The gospel fundamentally is relational. When Jesus comes on the scene in Mark's gospel, and Matthew and Luke as well, he doesn't show up to Peter and Andrew and say to them, I have an idea, boys. <laughs> Rather, he says to them, what? Follow me. That's personal, and it's intensely personal. And we said the intensity of the person of God with us is manifest in the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit. So you and I, through the presence of God's Spirit, participate in the life of God. Our lives are hidden with God in Christ, right? Colossians 3.3. 3. He's the vine, we're the branches. The Holy Spirit actually dwells in us, and according to the Gospel of John, that's what is eternal life. You have eternal life. You're not just headed to eternal life. You have eternal life because you have the presence of God living in you and you're participating now in the life of God as a child of God. Now some say, well, <clears throat> we, I want to get to this. What do you make of sin? And what do you make of idols? And here's... Here's my perspective on it. I, Sally may have a bit of a different one, but this, this is my perspective on it. We learn about sin with God through loving God. I, I want to get at it. I like art. I like going around to these flea market places and kind of these antique shops, and I like looking for that little treasure. I like going to auctions and finding little treasures. The way you find a treasure in art is not by looking at bad art. If you look at bad art, the only thing you know is how bad art can be. <laughs> if you want to discern what great art is, what do you look at? You look at great art. See, when you look at great art, it gives you definitions of discernment around that which is beautiful. This is why we believe that the essence of the redemption of Jesus Christ was to bring us not only the forgiveness of sins, but also the participation in the life of God. And in that participation of the life of God, what we begin to discover is that which is truly good, and beautiful. And as our hearts are captivated by that which is true, good, and beautiful, guess what happens? We have the capacity then to discern that which is not. But rather, if you go the opposite direction and you become preoccupied with sin and idols, what happens is that the human psyche has a tendency now to become self-preoccupied. It loses curiosity and it becomes critical and judgmental of the soul. 
When that happens, the soul begins to shrivel and shrink, and it doesn't live with a greater sense of freedom in the life of God. It's not that loving God and an emphasis on loving God diminishes our awareness of sin, rather quite the opposite. It accentuates true discernment of sin. That's critically important as we make our journey because we can get preoccupied actually if we are preoccupied with sin. We really tend to get preoccupied with secondary matters and not substantive matters of the soul. So love of God is what leads me, if we could say it this way, love of God leads me to true self-knowledge. Love of God leads me to true self-knowledge. And that true self-knowledge, when I love God, will lead me to a true self-forgetfulness. A preoccupation of sin does not lead to self-forgetfulness. It actually leads to self-preoccupation. Loving God frees the soul, frees the soul to be able to discern deeply within it its motive of heart, and leads us to that freedom of self-forgetfulness where now I can truly be present to others in a way that's loving. And so here's God's continued invitation to us, isn't it? The continued invitation to us is that we should surrender to this love, his love of us and to our love of him. And when we do that, we move in the direction of expanding our capacity to trust. And now we're back to what we said last evening, that trust is the currency of all relationships. Whether it's with my wife Sally, or my children or grandchildren, or friends, colleagues in ministry, with my siblings, trust is the currency of all relationships. And so we spent last evening talking about trust and we talked about those attachment patterns. Do you remember those attachment patterns that we learned by the time we were two years of age, and they are the uh, A, the first A word was of the avoidant attachment pattern, I trust me, but I don't trust you. And then there was that ambivalent, ambivalent attachment pattern, right, that said what? I don't trust me, but I trust you, and so I'm preoccupied always with you. And then we said there was this scattered attachment pattern which says, well, actually, I don't trust me and I don't trust you, which makes for a very difficult relational journey. And then finally, there's this stable attachment pattern, which is able to say, I trust me and I trust you. In other words, I can, be entry, I can enter into a relationship and have times of real relinquishment and trusting of you, but I also have a sense of me in my experience with you. Those are the attachment patterns. Were you able to do any of your homework last night? I know you were probably tired and not much time, but to reflect on those attachment patterns. And maybe if you couldn't really figure out your attachment pattern, maybe your spouse helped you. <laughs> and we said the attachment patterns are something that hangs out in implicit memory, right? Everything we 
we, everything we learned in our family of origin without having to pay attention. And we said our family of origin actually teaches us fundamentally how we go about belonging. Our, our family of origin teaches us how, how we go about trusting, right? And I gave you that illustration of this couple that was fighting a lot, and um, they would come to my office and then they'd talk about, um, they, they'd spend 20 minutes, a half hour, figuring out what they were fighting about. And I said, that was all the result of implicit memory. Uh, because they learned that when you do a close relationship, what you do is argue. Now, it doesn't make any difference what you argue about, but that's how you do a close relationship. Now, no one told them explicitly on a whiteboard when they were little people, here's how you do a relationship. You argue. But rather, that was what was the matrix of their family system, and that's what they picked up through implicit memory, and that's what they carried into their marriage. Now, Implicit memory also learns one other critical element about being in relationship and trusting. And from that couple that I just described, I would sit there and wonder, what is really happening here? They spent a week arguing, and yet when they come here, 24 hours later, they don't have a real recollection of what in the world they were arguing about. So eventually I began to surmise it wasn't anything to do with what they were arguing about. It had everything to do with how emotionally close they could be. So in our family of origin, we learn this. We learn a learned level of emotional intimacy. You can write that down. <laughs> That's one of the motivating factors in your implicit memory that led you to choose your spouse. Because your spouse and you have similar learned levels of emotional intimacy. If you didn't, he would be intolerable. And if she didn't, it'd be very hard to be with her. But you actually learned from your family system how emotionally close you could be, which is a fundamental dynamic of how much I can trust. Does that make sense? So I'm curious <clears throat> about this, we're curious about this learned level of emotional intimacy. And if you are taking notes, you can draw a line in your uh, notebook or on your, on your sheet of paper. And there are two extremes when it comes to learned levels of emotional intimacy. And every single human being is on this continuum. On one end of the line, we have what's called the enmeshed person. The enmeshed person. On the end of, other end of the line, we have what's called the detached person. So this continuum, if you will, is assessing whether or not I live from a perspective of being emotionally enmeshed, and that's what I'm familiar with, or is the continuum one of I learn, 
I learned to be close from a perspective of being emotionally detached. Now we've talked a bit about the enmeshed person when we talked about what attachment pattern. The enmeshed person, the emotionally enmeshed person is the emotionally dependent person, right? I have a sense of me by being emotionally enmeshed with you. And if you go away or pull away, I get really angry because now what's at stake? What's at stake is me because I need you to have a me. And so that emotionally enmeshed person feels rather desperate, if not anxious, if you're not there giving them a sense of their personal identity. Now, in some family systems, depending on the nature of your relationship, perhaps with your siblings, but more with your parent, either your mother or your father, you learned whether to be enmeshed, where it was your responsibility, and this is common, it was actually your responsibility to take care of your mother or to take care of your father or to actually be the glue that held the family together. That's a real possibility. There's lots of people who grow up in family systems and the nature of the family system is teaching them that your job here is to really take care of me. In fact, I'm working with a young gal in the Northwest right now. She's not young, she's 40 years old with children. It's very young. That's young she, to us. Younger, younger every day. <laughs> <laughs> She's having this awakening that she has striven so hard to lead this perfect idealized life because that's what was required of her in order that her mother could be okay. So if her mother was okay, then she was okay. So she learned through the journey that the way you do relationship is that you're enmeshed making sure the person that you are closest to, and she was closest to her mother, is doing okay, and that's her whole orientation. And she had to make the big decision to leave her mother's world. And that is a big decision that often happens in our late 30s, in our early 40s. We have to make the decision to leave our parents' emotional world and live our own emotional world. That's the enmeshed person, the person whose sense of self is preoccupied. And that's why in marriage sometimes, uh, a spouse can become quite frustrated or angry or disturbed or distressed or discouraged if they sense their spouse is withdrawing from them. They're distressed because they're too dependent on the presence of their spouse to make them a person. On the other end of the continuum, we call, we say there is this detached person. And anyone who want to guess which attachment pattern is the detached person? <laughs> the, the avoidance, right? And the detached person is the person who um, primarily has limited empathic attachment or connection. In other words, 
they really struggle having a hard time identifying with how their spouse feels. It's, it's kind of not on their radar. And the reason they have a very difficult time identifying with how their spouse feels is because they're not sure how they feel. And while our feelings aren't everything in a marital relationship, they are a very critical piece of intimacy in a marriage relationship. So the detached person has learned along the way that to be close is to be dangerous. To be emotionally close is to be dangerous. It's too risky. Too much is at stake. That kind of if you get too close, you, you sort of run into a buzzsaw of some sort or another. Too much gets required of you. You may get some verbal dressing down or even abuse. If you get too close, you can get physically mistreated. And so the decision becomes, I, I, another person that I'm doing some work with currently grew up in a family system where whenever she offered an opinion or a perspective, she was immediately dismissed. And what she learned along the way is that it's best not to say who I am. Because it's better not to say who I am than to face the chronic dismissiveness. Which, by the way, <laughs> this reminds me of Vander Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, which is a book on trauma. And I would encourage you, if you, you could read that book, it's eye-opening. In that book, Vander Kolk says, chronic emotional dismissiveness is as abusive as physical or verbal chronic abuse. That stunned me. That to be dismissed as a child, let me just ask you this question. To be chronically dismissed as a child, what's at risk for the child? Anyone have an idea? What's at risk if a child is chronically dismissed? Their sense of self-worth? Yeah. Trust is at risk? Exactly. Their sense of safety? How do I figure out how to be safe? Remember we said what's critically important in all our developmental years and even in our marriage relationship is the reliability and safety of the relationship because vulnerability and intimacy is predicated upon having a safe, reliable relationship. If that's taken away through dismissiveness or chronic criticism, the child must retreat. And that becomes my strategy then of being close to you when I grow up. Now, I develop more sophisticated defenses, but the primitive defense or the primitive strategy remains the same. I stay withdrawn and detached. It's very hard for me to let you know who I am. I'm more inclined to step back and to be quiet or to become preoccupied in something that I think matters more. But it's very, very frightening 
for me to step towards you and let you know who I am. So we can be on this spectrum, right? Depending on what my family of origin taught me, I can be on this spectrum of ambivalent and enmeshed, preoccupied with my relationship with you because you really are the source of who I am, or I can become detached where I shut down and I'm withdrawn and it's just sheer fear and fright for me to tell you who I am. Now there's a middle place on this continuum. It's not enmeshment, it's not detachment, it's called interdependence. <clears throat> interdependence is what we're aiming for when we think of emotional intimacy in a marriage. And as you might surmise, <clears throat> Interdependence is the experience of being dependent and being able to stand alone. That's interdependence. It's sort of like an A-frame, right? We can lean on one another. If you want to read a kind of a contemporary book, or not, it's not contemporary. It's contemporary for me. It was written in the 80s, so <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Sorry. It's by Marian Solomon. She's not a Christian. I think she's Jewish, in fact, and she, she gets way off the reservation on some things. But that's, that's okay. You're mature enough to read a book and think, think through it from a Christian perspective. The, the point is, she makes, she makes a very valid point. Western culture is predicated upon therapeutic language, which has argued for the last 50 years that the goal of adulthood is to be autonomous. She said that's a fallacy. No human being can live like this and be healthy. Autonomy is a fool's errand for maturity. Rather, she says, the goal of maturity is to live interdependently, where actually we can lean on one another and at times we can actually regress and be very, very dependent on one another which he makes the case often happens in sexual intimacy. There's a very primitive regression that can happen in sexual intimacy, which is appropriate for the sense of connection and belonging. But as we move towards and continue in health, this dependency can move towards interdependence, where I have my own feelings and my own thoughts and my own dreams and my own desires, which in fact then I can bring and I can lean on my spouse for helping me to achieve those individual goals. That's interdependency. That's what we're aiming for. We're not aiming for this mature person who doesn't need anybody, which isn't maturity, that's detachment. We're looking forward to that adult person who can appropriately lean on their spouse have times when they may regress and really, really need their spouse in a very primitive way for consolation, for comfort, for reaffirmation, but then can stand apart and give feedback and talk and communicate from my perspective. That's interdependency. That's the aim of the gospel. 
The aim of the gospel in loving God is to move us in the direction where we can surrender to him. And in surrendering to him, we become ourselves. It's Kierkegaard's prayer, which I absolutely love. And he says this prayer, it's a very simple prayer. And now by God's grace, I shall become myself. And so that's the love in marriage. That as we live interdependently, leaning on one another, even regressing at times in our need for consolation and comfort and encouragement, and yet being able to stand apart with our own sense of self, trusting one another. Any questions that you have about what we've just described in terms of shifting, um, I forgot a piece. Uh oh. I just wanted to say this. One of the reasons why God has you here in the body of Christ <laughs> is to help you mature your sense of emotional intimacy. The body of Christ is one of those key places where you actually learn from one another what it means to live in community and to live in a community where you're loved. And you learn appropriate emotional, learn, you, you learn a new level of emotional intimacy. And so we're together on this journey of moving towards becoming in, interdependent persons, right? That's Paul's whole point in 2 Corinthians. We're interdependent. We, we, we're just not, we can't just be an arm or we can't just be a leg. No, no, we're, we're the body and as a body we're interdependent and we're learning interdependency in the community of faith. And that's critically important for a person to become mature. So now that's, that's it. Um, questions about what I just said? Thoughts that I, about what I just said? Concerns about what I just said? Yes? Yeah, my conviction is after some 45 years of listening to folks um, is that when you were in your family and I was in my family, no one was teaching me overtly how close we could be. But rather there was an understanding in my family that was a very functional family by the way about how close we could be. Um, for instance, my dad, Ed, never came home to my mother, Ida, and said, Ida, how are you feeling today? <laughs> that wasn't on Ed's radar screen, and frankly, it wasn't on Ida's radar screen. That our emotional intimacy and connection was around what tasks we got done. So we learned a way of being close and connected within that family system. Implicit memory is the memory that's actually absorbing that as a child, particularly as a child, I'm absorbing that. Because what a child needs to figure out in their family system, every single child is figuring this out in the family system and they're observing mom and dad particularly. How secure is this place? How secure am I? 
And how safe am I here in these relationships? That's what matters. Lots of stuff can go away in their world. But when mom and dad are in trouble, what does that feel like to a child? It's kind of a threat. It makes them anxious. Why does it make them anxious? Because mom and dad are their source of security. And that was true for me, and it's true for every one of us in this room. Implicit memory is what I learned about that without having to pay attention. I just kind of absorbed it. I, I looked, I listened. I was kind of paying attention, but not really paying attention. I wasn't thinking, oh, this is how you do trust in a family. This is how close you can be in a family. I, I, I could care less about that. I just wanted to find my baseball glove. That, that was pretty much it. And I was kind of out the door and gone. But I was learning lots of things. So that implicit memory stays within me. So what do you think happens now when he comes home from work with me? <laughs> what happens, honey? Well, <laughs> he doesn't always automatically think about how my day was or to even think to ask me. And basically, maybe even for about an hour, I have to kind of leave him alone. Yes. And he's resettling and kind of getting back into the groove. But now, when he's really intentional about that implicit memory that tells him, I'm going to come home and just sit down and not talk to anyone, he is intentional about responding to me or checking in with me or asking me how my day was. That's you how it see works. what that makes? Does that make sense? It how, it's how it works. He's not planning that. Not so much. <laughs> But I carry that in my implicit memory, and I, I, my belief is we then that implicit memory is such a critical piece because it has to do with my being safe. And that's operative when I choose my spouse. Because when I'm choosing a spouse, I may think she's beautiful and he's handsome and we're going to have a great life together and whatever we load up it with. But the fundamental thing back in implicit memory is am I going to be able to be close to this person in a way that feels safe to me. Yes. Yeah. Well, how, that, how you navigate that is the recognition that the, our learned level of emotional intimacy as adults can be modified by my intentional relationship with others. In other words, I can modify my relationship of emotional intimacy by my choice of friends. I can modify that by, if it's a second marriage, I can modify that by the nature of that relationship and being intentional in it. It also gets modified, as I said, by being in the body of Christ, by making the choice to be in the community of faith, where in fact the nature of our love for one another really then begins to recalibrate whether I'm living in a place that was enmeshed or a place that was detached, which can often happen in a single parent home or a divorced family system, where enmeshment and detachment now are factors that are much more probable because think of a single mom, and maybe she has one or two children. Her life becomes about 
those children in some ways, and their life becomes about is mom okay, or in some cases, is dad okay? So I think our intentionality, and we'll talk about this a little bit, being intentional about our present relationships mm -hmm. on this particular issue becomes critical whether I'm going to mature my capacity to trust and to engage in emotional intimacy. I don't know if that helps. But I have choices now, and that's key. Any other thoughts or reflections? It, sometimes this sounds a little new and maybe a little quirky, and eh, I'm not too sure. <laughs> yeah, I. It's the only way I figured out why certain things roll the way they do in marriage relationships. Because it's not about rationality. Because it was just about rationality. There's two things we got cooking in, or there's a number of things we got cooking. I'm talking too long, but there's a number of things, but I'll keep on going. You're on a roll. <laughs> there's You're a number of things good. we've got cooking in, within us. We've got these three things. We got a number of things. We got our volition, my will. I've got my cognition, my thoughts. I've got my affections, my feelings. And I've got desire and memory and imagination as well. But the first three. You see, if it was merely about what I thought and what I should do, we could fix things pretty quickly, couldn't we? Right? You just think a certain way and you do a certain thing. Done. But we know that's not how it rolls relationally. And it's not how it rolls in our intimate relationships. Rather, what shows up are those feelings and my emotional world. And my emotional world is actually influencing my cognitive world. So my feelings, whether I know them or not, we'll talk more about this too, is actually influencing how I'm going about thinking and my thinking is determining how I might go around behaving. So it's then got into this whole question, where, where in the world do my emotions hang out? And what's been demonstrated clinically is that our feelings, our primary early feelings, hang out in implicit memory. They hang, there's parts of us that hang out in this piece of me that's not readily accessible just by thinking. But we will talk about how you get to implicit memory sometime this morning, <laughs> which is important. Yes, ma'am. I, I actually think it's both and. Yeah. I really think it's not either or, it's both and. We're trying to, we're going to find the person with whom it's comfortable, and that's the reenactment. But the hope is, this, this will change. This will be different. That's the hope. And the challenge is the recognition, it's kind of like Yogi Bear, deja vu all over again. Here I am, I'm, this, this sounds like my family, you know. And yet the hope is that in, with this person, we can change. Very good question. Thank you. Someone else? Thoughts you're having? Does, it, does this register a little bit? Yes. I just think when you say, like, 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 That reparative work, right? Yeah, we're going to talk again. Oh, we only got two hours. We want to. We, we want to talk a little bit about how our early wounding creates longing, and that's one of the critical elements to understand in our marriage as well. We don't just sin, we get sinned against. But I have to look down and see where in the world are we in our notes. Well, well uh, here, here's some questions that I wanted, to, uh, want, I wanted to give these questions here on page, is that right? Mm -hmm. Page nine? Yes. Yeah, these, these questions here. Okay. Why, don't, why don't you, okay. if you would do that. Please. We're making that for some things that we didn't cover last night too. Yeah. So, Okay, so if you find yourself figuring out whether you're being critical or curious. You know, sometimes we kind of jump to being critical first before we think about, well, the curiosity towards that other person. Can you approach these questions right now with your own curiosity? Do you know your pattern of trust? Do you avoid? Do you overly depend? Do you find yourself all in, but then soon wanting to escape? Do you stay connected in difficult times? Are you able to process conflict, reach a compromise? And then how do you see yourself on that continuum scale of being enmeshed, interdependent, or detached? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, you, there's a, I like to say there's a prevailing pattern, mm -hmm. but then at times I can slide mm. in the opposite direction, right, depending. So one of the interesting things to kind of do is you have that continuum. Mm -hmm. S try to look and s identify where each of you as, your, as spouses fall on that continuum. Where, where do you see yourselves present? Maybe on a scale of like one to five, you know, you're not going to be all the way to five, completely, totally enmeshed or completely, totally uh, detached. detached on the other end, usually. I think those number five people are probably having some other issues too. Well, maybe. Maybe. Do you invite your spouse to lean on you? And are you able to express your need to lean on your spouse? These will be some good, good questions for you to have a nice long discussion about.
maybe on date night or the weekend away or whenever you have time to kind of delve into it. They're not light questions. <laughs> maybe not around the children. <laughs> but we want you to explore we, we think to grow in our marriage. We want you to explore this arena of trusting and emotional connectedness. Just be curious about it, you know? Just be curious about how are we doing with these arenas in our relationship? You, you see what we've discovered, persons can have the same theological conviction they can have the same spiritual convictions. They can have the same convictions towards virtue. But at the same time, they're not as clear about their capacity to trust and their willingness for emotional engagement with one another. And so we think that communion in marriage requires this kind of agreement in the areas I've just said, in theology perhaps, or spirituality, if you will, convictions, biblical convictions, values, virtues. But intimacy is really born in these other areas of trusting and closeness emotionally, which is precisely, it seems to me, and it seems to us, exactly what's in the Gospels, right? This, this invitation to connection and communion. I, I just find it stunning. You see this throughout the Gospels, if you read them with this lens. You get to the end of John's Gospel, right? And Peter had really screwed up. <laughs> and I suspect Peter was deeply struggling with his behavior in light of the crucifixion. And Jesus comes to him. And what does Jesus ask Peter? Does he say to Peter, now Peter, let's think this through one more time, Paul. I want you to give me an understanding of me as the Messiah, which he really balled up at his confession when Jesus declared himself. He doesn't ask that at all. He says, Peter, do you love me? And he repeats it three times. And then Peter has this remarkable statement. He says, you know all things, Lord. That's the place of vulnerability and surrender. You know all things, Lord, and you know I love you. From that posture of loving and being loved, Peter is commissioned to go feed the sheep of God. That's what we're after in our marital relationship, this sense of communion and connection which Jesus was so intentional in forging with his disciples. So, um, we're on the hour. We want to stand up and kind of take a little 10-minute break, if you will. Kind of get some breath, maybe freshen up your coffee. There's some more muffins there if you need another big muffin, you know, to last till Monday, go after it.
Those muffins sure do look good. They are really big. <laughs> All right, welcome back after this break. I get a turn to talk now. Thank you. You do. <laughs> but when he gets on a roll like that, I just let him keep going because it's really a good thing. Uh, we did get to finally finish up what we wanted to say last night. So now we'll get started on Saturday. See, this is our game plan to be invited back. You know? <laughs> oh. Maybe it's not a, maybe you don't want, maybe not a good game plan, but whatever. <laughs> okay, so we want to talk about first this morning about taking responsibility. Stepping up and into your marriage by you taking responsibility. So... We believe this time-honored principle is affirmed again and again in God's Word, that God's Word tells us we must take responsibility. When Jesus says to the disciples, follow me, he was inviting them to take responsibility. When Jesus tells his disciples, exhorts his disciples to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him, like Rich said earlier, he was saying, you're responsible for you. When Jesus asked Peter at the end of John's gospel, Peter, do you love me? He was inviting Peter to take responsibility. When Jesus teaches us to take the log out of our own eye before we take the speck out of our brother's eye, he is telling us we need to take responsibility. When the apostle exhorts us by saying, pray constantly, he is encouraging us to take, thank you, to live our Christian virtues requires that we take responsibility. And that means in all areas, including our marriage. By the way, have you noticed in the gospel of Christ that virtues, virtues are in service of our relational intimacy the reason we seek to be a virtuous person one who is honest kind generous gentle is not so we may simply live up to some ethical standard that's that we've learned from the Bible and from the gospel it's our Christian virtues are designed to facilitate our relational communion and connection Stop and think for a minute. How close can you be to a dishonest, rude, stingy, hateful, mean person? Not very close. Would you want to be married to a person that's like that? Hopefully you're not. <laughs> Virtue serves intimacy. Mm. But to live our virtues, we have to be willing to be responsible for ourselves. I got married, and I thought maybe there were some things about Rich I could change or fix or make different. No, it was more about me entering into this marriage with what I could offer him. And to look at my own virtues first. Individually, we are to be kind, generous, patient, gentle, loving, all of those things that are part of the fruits of the Spirit. So here is the principle. To grow in grace and mature in intimacy. 
we individually must take greater self-responsibility for who we are and how we relate to others, not just our husbands or our spouses, our wives. Here's another question for you to think about. Is there a virtue God is inviting you to intentionally practice that would nurture your marriage? So today we want to focus on nurturing our marriage. Is there a virtue that you could intentionally practice that has been maybe revealed to you? Or maybe later it will be revealed. So, the first way that we have relational responsibility is by taking responsibility for my presence. We talked a little bit about it with those attachment patterns, but our souls are permeable. So by being permeable, it means that we internalize, we actually internalize the presence of others. Even as adults, we particularly think about it when we're little and we think about infants. That infant is internalizing your presence when you're holding them, rocking them, caring for them. And by the way, when you're holding your baby, your little baby, and you're feeding them and whatever, and you think they're so little and they don't realize what's going on except their their needs are being met by being fed, They are looking for your eyes and they are internalizing your presence by their by you looking into their eyes so if you're looking at your phone while you're I know I see I did it probably myself you're nursing the baby or you're caring rocking the baby but you're over here with the phone you know actually you know looking at Facebook or looking at your text messages or whatever you are not giving your presence to that baby to that child. That's one of my little pet peeves. Our souls are permeable. Identity is formed in a large part by our internalizing the presence of others. Our marriage and our level of marital intimacy is actually very dependent on our presence with our spouse. Are we available? Are we looking at our cell phone or our laptop or the TV? Are we kind? Do we show interest in what interests our spouse? Now, granted, I don't love going to all those auctions and those antique malls looking at that art stuff with Rich. I I don't love, love it, but I love being with him. And actually, through the years, I've kind of grown to have an appreciation for it. And it's a good thing because the walls in our house are covered with paintings and art, all, I'm talking covered, uh, I'm stacked, you know. So that was one thing I had to learn. It's kind of an addiction. <laughs> it is, it is for him. But there could be worse things to be addicted to, right? I'm thankful. <laughs> so, uh, and in the same way, Rich can show interest in some of the things that, that I love to do. Are we lighthearted? Sometimes we can be a little too lighthearted and maybe not take things for seriousness enough. But Rich can tend to be really serious. He can tend to always have his head in a book instead of on his phone. 
He has books everywhere in our home, on every table, and he has multiple books going at all times. You can tell he loves to read. And for the teachers in this room, I just want to share this little tidbit. He was in the low reading group when he was young <laughs> and actually was even told that he was not college material. It upsets so me hope, every right? time. So there's hope. There's hope. There's always hope. <laughs> but because that is something I'm interested in, in loving him, that's something that we've had to adjust to in our home, that the clutter of the books and the art everywhere. So there are some pitfalls in managing our presence that I, I want us to try to avoid. When we take responsibility for our presence, we avoid three, three, three major pitfalls. And since I'm a woman, I can say, ladies, you will probably be able to really identify with these. Maybe men do it too. You'll have to help me out, Rich. We do. Okay, number one is blaming. Blaming is the most common way we avoid responsibility for our presence, our behavior, and our words. I think you know what blaming is. It's always his fault. It's never mine. It's always his fault. You always do this. You always do that. You never listen to me. You hear what I'm saying? I'm, I'm blaming him. But I'm saying always, never, always, never. Those are some words to avoid. Blaming can be overt or it can be very subtle. Where there is blaming, there will be mistrust. Blaming is a clear indication that instead of responsibility, that person has chosen to be a, it's the big V word. You know what I'm saying? V. Victim, I heard it. I'm choosing to be the victim. When I blame you for everything, I'm the victim. Mm. You're mistreating me. You're, you're causing this to happen. I am then mistrusting. Mm. When I live in a victimized place, there is little growth possible. Mm. Victims get stuck. Victims never will grow. As long as I stay in that victim place and blame, 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 I will never grow. Anybody resonate with blaming? Oh, no one's being honest. <laughs> That's kind of embarrassing. It's a little personal. Okay. Now the next one, though, is a good one. Bottling. You get an idea of how direct <laughs> My dear wife can be. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Bottling is when we have the strategy relationally of stuffing what we feel. Feel. I'll try to say it without a southern accent. Feel. It's stuffing what we feel, particularly what we think. We just let it pile up inside. Now, ladies, surely there are some other ladies in here that bottle. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> we just let it pile up and pile up and pile up, and then all of a sudden, all he has to do is look at me 
out of the side of his eyes, and I am blowing up. I am mad and upset. Why did you look at me like that? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, it's because of other issues that I've let bottle up. Usually the cork eventually pops. Little or nothing gets resolved. We go back to bottling up our emotions and our thoughts. Some people might call that passive-aggressive. It can be just as damaging, or maybe even more so damaging, than if I went ahead and just got mad at him in the first place about whatever that situation was, about whatever the circumstance was. And the last one is brooding. So we have blaming, bottling, brooding. When we, this brooding is when we spend all day thinking about what am I going to say, what am I going to do when he comes home tonight and I've been mad at him all day long because he did not make up the bed this morning. He was the last one out of bed. It was his turn. He should have done it all day long. I'm thinking, thinking. Now, hopefully, it's nothing more serious than that, but... Uh, we go over and over and over in our minds a conversation we are sure to have. Sometimes it can be even about a conversation maybe you already had. It's kind of like that broken record that goes on in your mind. And on the Enneagram, if you're a one, you can be really prone to that broken record. You replay, 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 rehash, rehash, rehash in your mind. And it actually drives you crazy and you want it to stop. It, you, you can't really volitionally stop it. It just keeps playing. Our presence is one that is preoccupied. It's detached, disinterested, and self-absorbed. When we are brooding, we are only thinking from our perspective. Eventually, or typically, something tips that brooding scale. And either there's an emotional avalanche, or there's a verbal avalanche, or I withdraw sex, or I have some kind of a negative response that's not really going to solve anything. It hits the relationship, and no one has any idea how to dig out of it. That's where we get stuck. That there's such a massive amount of emotional debris with the blaming, bottling, or brooding. Mm. It's kind of hard to ever dig your way out of that pile. Mm. Now, we've talked with a lot of couples who come and say, we're stuck. We, we've been stuck in this pattern for so long now, maybe even years we do not know how to break it. We do not know how to get out of it. So, there is a way that we have found that has been very helpful, and there is hope. And that's through self-clarity. Self-clarity comes through self-reflection. And again, it's going back to taking responsibility. So Rich is going to tell us a little bit about self-clarity and self-reflection. Yeah. Actually, this experience yes. uh, that we've tried to present with you and the kind of things that we are presenting is to prod you into the direction or a trajectory of self-reflection. 
with, what's the C word? Not criticism, but <laughs> curiosity, right? Mm -hmm. um, we, we see this in the psalmist, don't we? In Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. I, I always find that interesting that the psalmist is, is kind of asking God to search him. There's this sense of communion. It's not that God needs to search him so God can figure out what's going on, right? God knows what's going on. It's actually because of his communion with God. He's inviting God to help him do what? He's inviting God to help him so he can know himself. That's what's happening. And he's particularly concerned to see if there's any way that's distorted <coughs> or corrupted. And um, is there something that has <coughs> been misaligned? <coughs> Excuse me. Is something misaligned within him? that he wants God to show him so that not just for the sake of God knowing, God's omniscient, he knows all things, <clears throat> but for his sake, that he may know it. So when we take responsibility, the journey becomes one of self-reflection. And frankly, self-reflection is that unique capacity that's a part of the Imago Dei. It's a part of the image of God in you. Animals function on instinct. They do not function on self-reflection. We have some instincts, but we also operate fundamentally through this capacity for self-reflection. So it's an invitation. When we take responsibility, we're willing to grow in self-clarity through self-reflection. And that is a part of our journey, part of the journey, <coughs> excuse me, part of the journey of Christian practice is this whole, whole journey of, uh, in some traditions it's called self-examination. In our Protestant tradition, we call it the journey of confession, where we enter into self-reflection, right? As we enter into self-reflection, we enter into those things in terms of what is distorted. By, by the by, here, here's our definition of sin. Sin is always parasitic. Sin has no life of its own. Sin can only host on something good. And when it hosts on something good, it's going to do one or two things to corrupt it. It's going to diminish it, or it's going to exaggerate it. And it's in the diminishment and the exaggeration of that which is good that the distortion of soul occurs. And in a sense, that's what the psalmist was praying that he could become aware of. In some sense, where has this exaggeration, diminishment, occurred within his world. Now, <clears throat> here's something we often say when, when persons, this happens when persons do the Enneagram. <laughs> um, they take the Enneagram and they get some sort of self-awareness. And they came back three years later, because we usually have them wait a couple, three years. They take the Enneagram again and it shows up 
not quite as good. <laughs> so what happens sometimes when we're becoming more self-aware, it's not that our lives necessarily become easier, they just become more real. And that's what we're after. We're interested in moving from our pretenses and illusions to that which is authentic and real. And so self-responsibility is this journey through self-reflection that moves me into directions of that which is most real and authentic and true within me. And sometimes when I do that, I become more acutely aware, this is what loving does, right? When I love God well, he's gonna make me more aware acutely of those parts of me that are less healthy, that are more distorted. And that's what the Spirit of God does, right? The Spirit of God is always interested in the motive of the heart. That's clear from Mark's gospel. You know, it's not, it's not the things that are external that concerns the Lord. It's that which is internal, that which issues from the heart, the motivations. And the Spirit of God leads us through self-responsibility and self-clarity through a greater sense of what, uh, what is truly motivating me. One of the things we wake up to is I think we wake up we wake up to the strategies by which we manage being me. There's a whole theory that approaches one's soul that's called internal family systems. And part of the theory is that every human being has what they call managers. Managers are the way we ordinarily go about being, being me. And what happens through self-reflection is that I can learn my typical managers. In other words, I learn the ways I go about being me. Another way to say it is, I can kind of learn the ways I employ my coping mechanisms. And when a marriage is becoming more self-aware as husband and wife, we become more aware of the ways that we use coping, manage, ma coping mechanisms, or another word would be our defenses, to help us navigate the terrain of doing life together. And we think what God's Spirit does for us is that he leads us into that kind of awareness. Um, and by the way, if, uh, uh, if you want to read the best book on addiction, it's by Gerald May, and it's called Addiction and Grace. And Gerald May basically argues, Gerald was a clinical, he was a psychiatrist who was a spiritual director for years, he's passed away now. But Gerald May had this notion that all human beings are addicted because the brain is a habituating kind of organ. It seeks for patterns and then it repeats them. And self-reflection leads us to this place of becoming aware of my habitual patterns, my habitual coping mechanisms, my habitual ways of self-protecting. That as I become aware of them, if I'm unwilling to become aware of them, they simply guide me without my knowing it. 
but if I become aware of them, I can take responsibility and then intentionally address those parts of me that are less healthy and less effective for building connection and communion. So a good question for us to ask is, typically, what's your managers? Do you know your managers? Do, do you know your strategies of coping? Do you know your strategies of self-protection? They kind of keep you in a place, you're sort of addicted to them because they're comfortable and maybe um, you actually don't know any other way. I um, recently had a, just several weeks ago, I had this 42-year-old man in our church, and he said, Can I really need to talk to you. And I said, sure, come on in. He set a time, he came in. And he was, he was talking about his internal world, and this is a pretty bright guy. And he was talking about this whole interior experience that he was having, that he had no idea how to name. And his interior experience actually was one of utter isolation where he said, I just feel so, he didn't say this, he just kept on speaking of this kind of empty ball within his stomach. This just emptiness, this acute emptiness that led to some occasional forms of suicidal ideation because it was just so horribly painful. And I said to him, well, Matt, maybe what you're doing is just suffering from loneliness. And in that moment of self-reflection, where he could consider what was happening within him, Matt just started to weep. He, he said, he, he's a seven on the Enneagram, right? So he can avoid everything that's painful, like the plague, very easily. He's got all kinds of skills for doing that but he couldn't avoid this pain of his deep sense of aloneness. And the moment he had clarity about his internal world, he now could be what? He could now take responsibility for that and he could be more intentional in the way he now needed to engage his wife about his particular circumstances in his journey with her. And it wasn't all about her. I'm not trying to allude to that at all. It was really about the way he was going about through the absence of self-knowledge and self-clarity, trying to cope with something that was extraordinarily painful deep within him. So we wake up. By the way, um, don't be surprised that if you do awaken in self-clarity, that the first movement of your soul may well be some sadness. We, we often think, oh, if I wake up, then I'm on, I'm on my way, and it's, oh, we're off and going. But Alan Jones in his little book, and I think he's dead right, Alan Jones in his book, Soul Making, says that when we wake up, the next movement of the human soul is to weep because now we're really seeing selves, ourselves very, very clearly. 
It's sort of like the Isaiah experience, right? When Isaiah has this encounter with the beauty of God, and that's what the holiness of God is. This beauty of God, this <coughs> magnificent beauty of God. He cries out, I'm undone. He sees himself with such great clarity. He sees himself undone. And so when the Spirit of God is leading us into self-responsibility and leading us into self-clarity, there may well be this season of sadness for us because now we're seeing some things, perhaps our coping mechanisms and our strategies of self-protection have been keeping us, has been keeping at bay. And I think this is particularly true with trauma victims. There's a good percentage of persons in this room, perhaps 30 to 40% of you, who have suffered trauma in your journey, and perhaps higher. One of the strategies of all trauma victims in making their way into adult life is to minimize what they have and the awakening of God's Holy Spirit because he wants you to be as whole as you can be in your relationships. The work of God's Holy Spirit sometimes is to awaken you to this was my reality. And when I awaken to that reality, there's often a season of weeping and sadness, which is appropriate, right? Which is appropriate. So the journey is one of taking responsibility. And having said all that, we want to move in the direction of how do we cultivate and take responsibility for fostering relational intimacy? That's our next step. Okay. All right? All right. And, um, we've got this little, I don't know, is it called it? Acronym. Acronym, that's what it is. <laughs> And it's FANOS, F-A-N-O-S. Mm -hmm. We're going to give you some things around F-A-N-O-S, FANOS. All right. So, so you, can you guess what F stands for? <laughs> it's feelings. Feelings. Far too long, for far too long, the evangelical tribe that we're all part of has minimized and been dismissive of feelings. Some people might even say, oh, that's kind of like psychobabble. That's kind of out there. It's not part of the gospel. But no, it is. It is. People want to say to you, you don't trust your feelings. You can't act on your feelings. Your feelings don't matter. Just, you know, buck it up and move on. You've heard the old phrase with little children, you know, don't cry, don't be a baby. You have to get past your feelings. You can't rely on your feelings. If we relied on our feelings, we'd be probably in big trouble. Or feelings come and go. Give yourself some time. Or some people just say, it's been enough time, move on. You shouldn't have those feelings anymore. So here's a simple truth. Our feelings influence every thought we have, whether or not we are aware of our feelings or not. They are still influencing us. And the book to read on that <laughs> is called The Emotional Life of the Brain, if you're interested. It's by a Wisconsin, uh, University of Wisconsin researcher, Davidson, who makes the statement and makes clear in his research that the neural systems of the brain 
that have to do with cognition, thinking, are interfacing all the time with the neurosystems of our limbic system, which happens to be the seat of our emotions. So the brain is wired so that whether or not we know our feelings or not, they're influencing our thoughts. That's a footnote comment, honey. That's good. I like it. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so this part of uh, recognizing our feelings is part of what's called relational agility. I didn't say that in the first place. This is about relational agility. It's a way that we can move towards our relational intimacy. So feelings are what they are. Sometimes they don't make sense. Sometimes they do. So here is a common pitfall with what we do with our feelings. We may be quick to critique or judge what our spouse feels <laughs> instead of being, what's the C word? Curious, thank you, good, about why that they are feeling that way. So there is kind of often a complete lack of knowing what I'm feeling or he may have a complete lack of knowing what he's feeling. But here are some questions that you could ask each other or even ask yourself. Do you know what you're feeling? Why are you feeling the way you are? What are your feelings trying to say? What are your feelings connected to? When does this feeling show up? Is this a feeling I have all the time? Who's around when you feel this way? So when my mom was visiting, yes. and I was <laughs> feeling like the caregiver, it's because I am the oldest child. I was the caregiver. My mom, I you love her. I was the glue. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't even realize that probably until about maybe 15 years ago, mm -hmm. honestly. And here I am, an old lady. So it took a long time for me to learn what we're trying to share with you today. So when... I can't fix things or take care of things or, you know, bring him a glass of bottle of water or I can't fix my world for my children or myself. I'm unsettled. My feelings are almost desperation. What can I do? I've got to do more. I've got to do more. I've got to figure out how to fix it, how to make it happen. So when my mom came to visit for a month, guess what? I'm in major overdrive trying to fix everything, trying to make everything perfect. I mean, even to the point of I, I requested that I buy a new bed for my mother so she could sleep well and comfortably and turn the study into her bedroom with a new bed complete with the recliner. The favorite recliner goes into her room and, you know, on and on. You see what I'm saying? 
Yes, but we do. <laughs> <laughs> Rich was very gracious, but he knew it would end also. Yes, but I did. <laughs> Thanks oh. be to God. <laughs> but when I stop and reflect back, why am I feeling this desperation? And I actually was irritated with Rich when he wasn't going along with my plan. <laughs> but... When I stopped, yes, she was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was very irritated. <laughs> but I, but I, when I stop and think about my feelings and what is the root of these feelings, why am I feeling so desperate to do this? I can go back. I'm not trying to place blame on my parents. I'm just trying to be realistic to say that was our family of origin. That was my birth order. That was my everything. Mm-hmm besides the fact that my father wasn't able to take care of my mom, I stepped in and took care of my mom. I just want to make this comment, honey. Okay. That feelings, here's a definite, feelings are states of your body. Mm. That's an important definition. And it's important because if I'm disconnected from my body, I will be disconnected from my emotional world. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a, in a minute. But you see, feelings aren't merely thoughts. So if you are feeling really, really happy, that's way more than just a thought, is it not? You, you, can, you feel it viscerally. There's something physiological that's happening. Uh, correspondingly, if you feel really, really sad and are grief-stricken, you know, I, we're aware that in your community there's been the loss of the death of some children, infant children. Now, I suspect when you heard that news, that just wasn't an idea, was it? But that kind of cap, that kind of caught something deep within you. Why is that? Because feelings are states of our body. And if I understand my feeling world is a state of my body, I can find ways now to become connected to my body. And that's critically important. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. But it's appropriate to kind of, when we're thinking about feelings, we're not thinking about ideas. We're actually thinking about states of our body that we have given given a label to. And fundamentally, there are only two primary primitive feelings. And they are good, bad. And everything else is merely nuancing those two primitive states. Good is connected and safe. Bad is alone and detached. So remember when we mentioned last night that uh, our feelings are linked to experiences that actually precede our marriage. Remember that, 80%? And then most, some of the most painful emotional moments in our marriage occur when old relational wounds reoccur and they get activated. So when Rich doesn't let me um, 
go buy brand new curtains for mom's room that I made out of his study. Uh, those are old relational wounds that really don't have anything to do with curtains. Really, maybe not even about my mom. It was about those feelings I had when I was young, as a young child, trying to take care of things. So the wound from the past becomes loaded up in the present emotional experience, and I get stuck, or you get stuck if you're not recognizing why you're having those feelings. So there are certain ways in our marriage that we start to interact with one another based on those feelings. Do we ignore one another? Do we neglect one another? Do we just tolerate one another? Are we controlling? Yes, I can be. Are we hypercritical, stubborn? resentful. <laughs> I was complaining and complaining and complaining about my mom being so stubborn and Rich is like, well, you're pretty stubborn. <laughs> like, you need to bring that to your attention. I, I know. Like, oh, yeah, yes, I, I can be. If this is happening, then your feelings will be indicators that something is going on and they may be screaming out, get help, do something about it, look at this, be self-reflective. Yeah. Feelings, uh, this is from Susan Davidson's book, Relational, Emotional Agility. She writes, feelings are data, they're not directors. Mm -hmm. Feelings are designed to provide information. They're not so much designed necessarily to give us direction or to be our directors. And if sometimes, sometimes they're imp, they're, they provide such important information that we, if we have the appropriate value system and relational dynamics, we listen to them and we, we follow their leads. For instance, it's appropriate when I hear of a tragedy, for instance, of a loss of life, that I would feel so profoundly grief-stricken that that would give me direction, if you will. It would be data that I would then say, okay, what do I do with this data? Now, those feelings can end up becoming directors, and if they become directors, they can injure me long-term. But if I recognize them as data, I then can apply my relationship of the Lord and the values within my relationship with the Lord to that data, and then I can appropriately respond. So one, for instance, just sticking with this notion, when I'm grief-stricken, the scripture has a great deal to say about lament, does it not? In fact, there's a whole book called Lamentations. There's lament, and lament is a part of our journey. It's a part of when we suffer loss that's deep and sometimes unexpected. So listening to this emotional world that I have, these feelings, I'm listening for data, I'm listening for information that I then can reflect upon and decide what's the way forward in light of my relationship and to live my life authentically. Data, not directors. Okay, so what about my exaggerated feelings? If they get out of control, they get carried away. Just like Rich was trying to 
show us now. Your feelings influence your thinking, and our thinking can educate our feelings. In fact, if we're going to mature and take control and have a better control over our exaggerated feelings, we must educate our feelings. Meaning, I need to step back from this a little bit right now. Who do I want to be? How do I want to react? How do I want to um, move on, move forward, like you said? And that I'm not going to be a victim to my feelings. Yeah. What educates feelings? Fundamentally, what educates feelings? One, my relationship with the Lord. And two, the virtues of my faith. That's what educates feelings. So if my relationships with the Lord involve relationships here in the community of faith, then the community of faith becomes part of that experience of educating my emotional world. And many of us need the community of faith to help educate our emotional world because what we lived in our family of origin to learn how to navigate our emotional world wasn't terribly helpful. So we need our relationship with the Lord who loves us and whose spirit is going to guide us, right? He's going to lead us into truth. So he educates us by his presence in our life. And we find that education coming through the virtues of our faith that then give definition to how best to respond to certain emotions. Did you already mention Gerald May? About? This is one of Rich's favorite quotes. The freedom to choose is not the same as the power to control. The freedom to choose is not the same as the power to control. I love that quote. From the Awakened Heart by Gerald May. So don't be worried about, I can't control it. I can't control him. I can't control my mom. Rather, focus on the choice that I can make. Mm -hmm. Okay? Making a choice contributes to that connection. And if I think relationally and act relationally, my feelings will become educated. Mm -hmm. So that's the F as part of this FANOS acronym. Yeah, that notion, you see, because when, you, when we live in our adult journey, I suspect you're aware now, given your age, that there's parts of your life that you cannot control. There are people in your life you cannot control. And what do we do with that, that some people that we can't control, particularly if they have to be from our family system, can be really, really, really <laughs> annoying. You know, they can kind of get under our skin like no other. Have you noticed that? I've noticed that. Mm -hmm. I have four sisters. Several of them can be rather annoying every time I talk to them. It's not getting better. (laughs) Trust me. Now, I can have that kind of shape my world with them because I, I really cannot control my oldest sister. She's adverse to any kind of control. At times I think she's addicted to doing stupid. <laughs> but we let that go. Because it's not about having the power to control. It's rather, rather paying attention to my, I still have the freedom to make a choice, don't I? 
I have the freedom to make the choice from my relationship with the Lord, my value system, and who I want to be in relationship with others. I, I remember reading this little quote in May's book, The Awakened Heart, and he dealt with, at one period in his life, a lot of psychotic people. And his conviction was, even the person with the greatest psychosis, detachment from reality, still, nevertheless, by the love of God, had a choice. They maybe couldn't move the needle dramatically, but they could move the needle if they so choose, if they so chose. So think about this, particularly with your emotional world. What choice might God be inviting you to? I just, um, yeah, I'll let that go until we get to something else. Go ahead. Remember, he was in the low reading group. He keeps thinking about these books and the good things he's been reading. That's good. Yeah. All right. A is for affirmation. Affirmation is an essential ingredient of Christian love. Inherent in God's love for us is his affirmation of us. He loves us and in so doing declares we have dignity, value, and significance. Mm -hmm. He delights in who we are as his children. He relishes in our love of him. Wouldn't that be cool if you could say the same thing about your marriage? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Affirmation is the opposite of taking for granted. When God loves us, he shows up as an infant born in a major. That's pretty earthy, isn't it? He loves and engages us with clueless fishermen, greedy tax collectors, self-righteous Pharisees. He engages all sorts of folks deeply desiring something more. It's pretty earthy. What is the affirmation quotient of your marriage? Are you quick to affirm, to praise, to appreciate? Do you just assume that he's going to make the bed? The laundry's done, the dishes are done, the house picked up, the bills paid, the cars are running, the money's been saved, put back for retirement. Affirmation is closely linked to gratitude. We spoke about that yesterday, didn't we? Mm -hmm. That connection between affirmation and gratitude. Mm -hmm. Critically important in a mm -hmm. marriage relationship. It, it opens the heart. It engages a sense of willingness to be with. This is the critical link towards healthy sexual intimacy in marriage. This is it. It's gratitude and affirmation. Gratitude and affirmation is what opens the heart and makes me want to be accessible to you. And without that, sexuality merely becomes functionality in the relationship. And if it becomes that, it soon's gonna lead to disinterest. 
But affirmation that's marked by gratitude really becomes that which facilitates this sense of communion and connection and is so, so critically important. Again, we said it last night, if, if, if we're not affirming one another, who will be affirming our spouse? If we're not grateful for our spouse, then who will be grateful for our spouse? And uh, the dilemma, the subtle dilemma of, that leads to affairs, etc., is that somebody shows up and you know what they do? They affirm. If you ask couples what led them into this affair or whatever yeah. led them into temptation, it's never really, I mean, I don't recall ever, yeah. ever hearing them say just about sex. Yeah, nobody sends a text message and says, hey, let's have sex. <laughs> and that begins the affair. It, it, it doesn't happen. What, what happens? Somebody shows interest, right? Someone shows interest, and in that showing of interest, there's words of affirmation and gratitude, guaranteed. Someone shows interest through affirmation, and that becomes the journey towards um, inappropriate physical connecting at any level. Affir so, so important. The challenge in affirmation is that it takes intentionality. Remember last night I mentioned you look for the positives instead of just dwelling on the negatives. <laughs> we need to practice it. We need to make it a habit of our heart. And I don't think that's something we, all, any of us maybe do just naturally, automatically. Something we have to be intentional about. Did you know that grateful people live longer? Rich said that last night. Mm -hmm. They're healthier, happier, less autoimmune, all those different things, skin, whatever. They live longer. Affirmation does. What it does for us is give us a practical application of connecting, of loving each other, building a solid base for our marriage. It builds security. And from that place of security, it's going to build what we call relational resiliency. Mm -hmm. Because you've all lived long enough with your spouse, because you're all past two days, <laughs> that, um, that you're going to be disappointed and they're going to do things that hurt. Well, what is it that creates this capacity, this resiliency to bounce back? That, that's what resiliency is. Mature people are resilient relationally, right? They, can, they bounce back. Well, what is it that creates this flexibility of psyche, this, this kind of resiliency to bounce back? How do I bounce back? It's because I've received affirmation and I've heard words of gratitude. So I know what might have been injurious is done within a particular context that is one of affirmation and gratitude. That's a game changer in terms of the capacity to be resilient and come back together. So it's the so more I trust him, it's the deeper that connection is between us. And actually, that does come with time. If you've only been married a week or two, you may not have had time to develop that a lot yet, but it, it grows stronger and stronger with time. Yeah. Thank you.
So, questions about this whole emotional world? We doing okay? How are you feeling? <laughs> Do you know? Do you have questions before we go on into the N? We've done the F feelings, A affirmation, and we're about to go into the N. Yeah. So here, the, the brain operates with two seats of awareness. If I would ask you to tell me a little bit about yourself, it's going to activate a particular region of your brain that has to do with autobiographical awareness. That region of your brain has nothing to do with if I tell, ask you the question, how are you feeling today? So what can be online is your, your attentiveness or awareness of your autobiographical information. What can go offline is that area, region of your brain that has to do with how you're feeling. So to get that region of your brain online, here's an exercise you can do. Once a day, ask your spouse, how are you feeling? And if you really have a hard time identifying your feelings because you're actually disconnected from your body, and that's, that's not uncommon in our evangelical world because we prefer to think than feel, then what you can do is you can ask yourself once a day, preferably noontime, how am I feeling right now? And be aware of what your body is telling you. How am I feeling right now? That information, that data is important for you. You grow your capacity to be aware of your emotional world and the emotional world of others, which is a link to your capacity for empathy. Now, if you don't have the labels, in other words, I really don't know feeling words. <laughs> Good, okay, um, Maybe happy, bad. That, that's really not robust enough, right? <laughs> so what we want to do is we want to get online, we want to go to Google, and we want to type in list of emotions. <laughs> and then we're going to print it out. And we're going to read it three times a week. You know why we're going to do that? Because you can't name what you can't label and learn the language of your emotional world. Learn the nuances of your emotional world. And as you pay attention to your body and you have your list, it'll be a couple, three pages. Literally, this is the exercise we give to persons who can't name their emotional world. Over time, you begin to name your emotional world, and as you name your emotional world, you increase your capacity for intimacy and communion. And I would encourage you to help your children learn the vocabulary of feelings and emotions. Yeah. If you have children. Absolutely. Yeah, Jesus didn't say, here's the great commandment, think about God, did he? Because <laughs> if he wanted the great commandment to think about God, he would have said that. Don't you think? Here's the great commandment. Think about God with all your mind and strength. He didn't say that. He said, here's the great commandment. He said, love God. And love God includes our thinking. It includes our desires. It includes our behaviors. And it includes our affections. 
And bringing our affections online is really a game changer for our actual experience of the presence of God. So we need to go to Ed because we're running out of time and we got to get we got to get to S and all a bunch of other stuff. So N stands for needs, which is critically important. Have <clears throat> I? I can recall numerous couples we have sat with, and after a while we begin to say to one or both of them, can you tell me what you need? And they look at us and say, mm, I don't understand the question. Could you reframe it? And I, we typically say, absolutely, we'll reframe it. Can you tell me what you need? And they say, I don't understand the question. And you Sometimes know, they'll answer to say, though, what they think the other person <laughs> yeah, needs. Here, he, they, uh, he needs, she yeah. needs. No, no, no. What is it you need? And oftentimes, um, <clears throat> that's considered by some as being selfish. And along the line, <clears throat> particularly, again, in family of origin, their needs were dismissed. It wasn't, it wasn't necessary to have needs. It wasn't appropriate to have needs. Having a need got you in trouble. <clears throat> There's many, many persons, I suspect some in this room, that have a very difficult time naming what they need. So, or naming what they want. Because they have a hard time knowing what they deeply desire. So it plays out this way in a marriage relationship. Say, well, where would you like to go to dinner tonight? Sir, date night, we're going out for dinner. What would you like to do? Oh, whatever you think. Whatever. We're going on vacation this summer. Remember, we're going to take the kids. We're going to go on vacation. Where would, where would you think would be a good idea for us to go? Well, uh, probably whatever you think would be good for us. What do you, what do you think? See, there's never an owning of what it is I need or want or think. If I don't know my needs, it leads to a relationship that gets muddied and it fuels disinterest. Now, if I'm declaring my needs all the time, that's, that's another problem, right? It, it, and I, it, so all these things can be, can be problematic because they can be diminished or they can be exaggerated. That's what sin is, right? Sin exaggerates or diminishes. But realistically, every human soul has needs. And maybe even your needs can't be immediately met, or maybe ever met. Hmm. But as long as you are staying and evaluating and thinking about what you need, maybe there would be a way to it. So there is a need for some comfort from time to time. Mm -hmm. There is a need for reassurance. There is a need to be heard. There is the need to be known. There is the need for affirmation. Um, but you're supposed to know what I need. I shouldn't have to tell you. No, that's not true, Sally. This, <laughs> that's the fatal mistake that we can make in our marriage, that we 
have assumptions that you should know. Please don't make those assumptions <clears throat> because it's a dangerous thing to make these assumptions. Sometimes I need correction. Um, like I said, I have a low one on the internet. I, I, I need rest. Sometimes um, young moms need to be alone. And we encourage, um, in our work, we encourage every young mom to have at least two to four hours a week just for herself. And we encourage dads as well to have two, three, four hours a week just for himself. We need time alone. And we need to play. But sometimes <coughs> if I am not willing to tell you what I need, then I'm assuming that you're going to know it. That can also be a way that I manipulate him. It can be a way that I control the relationship. And then if he doesn't figure out what I need, even when I haven't told him, then I'm mad at him. Mm -hmm. You should have known. Remember the blind man in uh, Luke 18? The crowd's going by. He starts out and shouts out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Mm -hmm. Of course, all the other disciples are really busy. They're so clueless. Um, they're trying to shut the guy up. And he yells all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, bring the man to me. And here's his question. What's the question of Jesus to the blind man? What do you want me to do for you? Now again, I don't think Jesus was kind of perplexed or confused about what this blind man wanted. What Jesus was doing for the blind man was helping him declare his own soul. And he said, I want to see. And Jesus said, your faith has made you well. Declaration of desire, declaration of need is of an appropriate dimension of our spiritual journey before the Lord. And the Lord sometimes comes to us and says, what is it you need? What is it you need? And sometimes he comes to us and he says to us, what do you most deeply desire? And sometimes we need to ask our spouse, what is it, honey, you need? And what is it you most deeply desire? Or how can I help you? Yes. Do you know your needs? Do you know what you need? Can you state your needs? And are you stating your needs? So that's N. Okay, good. We're good. F, feelings, A, affirmation, N, needs. O is for own. Owning who you are. We spend a, a lot of time talking about our relational connection and talking about being responsible for building that. But when we use the word own as in owning who you are, we are focusing on our sense of responsibility. Mm -hmm. 
In other words, we are not talking about responsibilities like taking care of the house or the car or, or your jobs or your kids. There are lots of things to be responsible for, but owning is about being responsible to own you. Owning your story. Owning your stuff. The actual owning of our lives is one of the most arduous tasks we will ever encounter. Owning my own stuff. David Benner writes this little line that's called, what we disown will eventually own us. That's kind of a paraphrase, but what we disown will eventually own us. So owning who we are takes courage. It's the willingness to face ourselves graciously and honestly. We need to own who we are if we are to mature as a couple, as persons, and growing in connection with all the relationships in our life. Whatever it is, wherever you have been, whoever you are, we must own it before God. Now, owning it before God means that God already knows what we've lived and done, but we are owning it before God. Yeah, I, here's a, here, this is kind of an extreme example, but it makes the point so clearly. <laughs> we were working with this couple, and they were a good couple. And we always ask people to tell, tell us their story. And the wife was telling us about how wonderful her family was, this, that, and another thing. And whenever be, anybody's trying to convince me how wonderful their family is, I, my sick suspiciousness gets a little more heightened. <laughs> so as she goes along, she makes, a, she makes the passing comment that her father sexually abused her sister. Now, the reason they were, the reason they were in the room is because her husband was rather passive. But she had withering, and I mean withering, criticism of him continually. And here's the connection. What she was disowning about her father, guess who was receiving the brunt of it? She was being owned by her anger that she couldn't own with her father because she needed to perpetuate an idealized family from which she thinks she came. Which led to self-justification for her withering criticism of her husband, who was never enough. You see how it plays? Whatever I disown can own me. And that was a classic example. Sally's right. When we're talking about here, we're talking about what is it that's that's part of my journey that I really have a tendency to minimize, deny, or avoid, that I need to enter into some sort of owning. And it may be the way, typically it is the way you were treated or what happened in your family system. One of our favorite <clears throat> authors is Wendell Berry. Mm. And he writes some really great things, but one of the things that we like is that he has said in this regard about owning is the life I have is the only life I got. Yeah. The okay. life I have is the only life I've got, yeah. whether I own it or disown it. This is it. In this whole area of owning, which we don't have in our notes, 
<clears throat> when we talked about wounding early on, mm -hmm. there's two dynamics uh, from a theological perspective, if you will, that happen in a family system. There are a number, not two, no, there's a number of them. But two <laughs> critical ones is that I sin, right? As a kid, I sin. I, I sin against my parents, I sin against my siblings. And I'm sinned against. And we in our tribe do a great deal of emphasizing on our sinning. We minimize how we've been sinned against. And here, I think, is the critical insight that we have discerned along the way. Oftentimes, my fundamental method means of coping and my fundamental means of self-protection have to do with the fundamental way I was wounded in my childhood. And owning means taking ownership for my woundedness. Because salvation, that Greek word sozo, needs not only to be saved from my sin, but it means to be healed from my wounds. And so in the Gospels we see Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven, take up your mat and go home. But we also see Jesus continuously saving and stepping towards by doing what? By healing. He says to the blind man, your faith has made you well. Your faith has healed you. Jesus intends to come to us to address these deep wounds that we carry that, as Sally said earlier, can get activated by my current relationship. In fact, uh, Harville Hendricks in the book Getting the, Getting the Love You Need basically says we marry the perfect spouse who can activate our deepest wound. <laughs> we called that falling in love. <laughs> and have you noticed that? So ownership means here becoming acutely aware, becoming aware of how I've been wounded not for the sake of being a victim or a pity party, but rather for the engagement of God, for the healing of the wound. And I wish we just had a bunch of time to talk about that journey of healing, but just quickly. We heal our wounds not by ideas, but we heal our wounds by attending to the emotional damage done when the wound occurred. Does that make sense? In other words, when you are wounded, you are wounded and you're carrying certain emotional damage. That emotional damage needs to be addressed in the journey of healing and it's addressed by our experience with God. And the way we address it is through imagination. So I imagine myself in the presence of God and the presence of God is providing me the opposite feeling of what occurred when I was wounded. So that when I think of my wound, my deepest wound, and those feelings, what I do is I bring that wound to the presence of God and I create an image of God for me in Christ that brings to me the opposite emotion of my wound. And as I do that, I literally rewire my brain so that when I think of that emotion that occurred from my wound, 
the immediate thought that comes to mind is not the emotion of the wound, but the delight or the emotion that is mine in, with my father who loves me and cares for me. That's the journey. We do not heal deep emotional wounds by just thinking. We heal deep emotional wounds by feeling the opposite that God in Christ provides. And uh, the great little read on that is by Gregory Boyd. I know he gets off the reservation from time to time, but that's okay. <laughs> in his book, Escaping the Matrix, is a book that articulates in detail that particular approach towards healing deep wounds. So, in owning, do you want to do those questions, sweetie? Really like yes. Yes. Here's some questions you can ask. Okay. If I am avoidant, I need to own my way of escaping, deflecting, or dodging. If I am avoidant, if I am exaggeratedly dependent, I need to own my dependency. I may need to own my uncertainty, my fear of actually being me or a separate person. It's something I may need to own in my uncertainty. I have to own my distorted understanding that if I declare a need, I am being selfish. Get over that. If my struggle is sexual, I need to own it. If my struggle is over pornography, I need to own it. If I am wandering off in some fantasy world to escape, I need to own it. If I am stuck in an argument or an argumentative loop, I need to own it. If I have a pile of resentment, it's building up, building up, I need to own it. If I am grieving, then I must own the grief. And even in its loneliness and pain, and even maybe sometimes darkness, I need to own it. It's okay. If I have trouble managing money, I own it. If I have trouble controlling, I own it. You know, you get the drift, right? Owning our life is God's will for us. But I really, really want you to talk about story some yeah. more. That's the, last, that's the last letter, S. Yeah, part of owning is knowing my story. Yes. We said earlier, you know, we talked about this earlier. We've talked a lot about implicit memory and what we've learned. The, the way to your implicit world, the things that aren't immediately in consciousness for you, are through your story, mm -hmm. by telling your story. Actually, by telling your story, you can make your way into th those parts of you that remain hidden away or tucked away for whatever reason. And but something that happens when you start telling your story 
it kind of like breaks the dam. Other things start bubbling up. One of the ways we we talk about in, in beginning to tell your story is just start back at your earliest memory. This is a good, good exercise to do with your spouse. And it may be kindergarten, maybe preschool, whatever. But that earliest memory that you have, that's where you start. And you just kind of work your way forward. And then the next time you sit down and you're talking about your story with each other, other things will come up. And it may may be something that happened back in that kindergarten year, whatever that you feel you've already covered. But other things keep popping up, and it will happen more and more, and kind of the floodgates will open, and you'll be able to remember more. Yeah. Um, the, the realization is, is that for the vast majority of adults, very few adults have had someone actually listen to their story. Mm-hmm. And very few adults have actually had an opportunity to tell their story. And oftentimes in our marital relationships, we're selective in the parts of the story that we want to tell. But marriage takes courage. And it's always an invitation to vulnerability. So when you engage telling your story, we've got, we got a pile of questions because people say, well, what, what do we do when we tell our story? I mean, we, we've kind of talked about it. Here's some things, here, here's some questions, a list of them. What was it like growing up in your family? And you can spend a good bit of time there. <laughs> what was it like growing up in your family? Was your family chaotic? Was your family a dramatic family? Was your family a moralistic family? Was your family a narcissistic family? Was your family a traumatic family? What did you have permission to be in your family? What couldn't you be in your family? Who is in charge in your family? How did you know? How did they stay in charge? Who are your siblings, if you had them? What was it like to have life with them? Which sibling was most helpful? Which one hurt you the most? What brought you the greatest joy as a little person? And maybe as a big person. What happened the first time you got in trouble? What was it? Who was there? Who was the first person you kissed other than your parents? or your grandparents. What happened when you went to get your driver's license? What did you do after you got your driver's license? (laughs) 
If you went to college or vocational school, what were those days like? If you entered the workforce immediately, what were those days like? Who was your first job? What was your first job? Who was your first boss? When did you realize you couldn't stay at home anymore? Time to move on. How did mom and dad manage their feelings? What did you observe about their relationship? And those are only a few of the questions you can ask one another. Here's a good exercise, and we often recommend it, is that a couple commit themselves to an hour a week. And in that hour, each person has a half hour to talk about their story. Maybe you can't do an hour because of the kids. Right, take, take, take half hour. Take 10 minutes. Each gets five. <laughs> but the only thing you're doing is listening to that part of the story your spouse is telling you, and you're simply curious about what they live. That's all. You're not trying to fix it because you can't fix that. That's their stuff to work on. What helps them heal, and we know this from the clinical data, what heals a person is having someone listen to their story. Because when we tell our story with someone who listens to our story, actually the storytelling leads towards psychological integration. In other words, parts of me I thought I had to disown, I now can own, and when I have an integrated self, I have a more stable self. I have a more reliable self. And for a married couple, that's going to lead to greater intimacy. Yes. Because you're being heard and understood. The conviction is, again, from a theological perspective that your story is actually a part of God's story. That there's a meta story, the story of God, and your story is part of the meta story. So your story isn't one that's merely only about you. Your story is a part of the story of God who is unfolding his purposes in your life and mine and ours together that's beyond what we can see and know. But we're part of that story, riding the current of grace. Tell your story. Repeat your story. Explore your story. Be curious about your story. As Sally said yesterday, nothing is wasted in the economy of God. And as I'd like to say from uh, Richard Rohr, Richard Rohr says, whatever was and whatever is, is the teacher. <laughs> I love that line. Whatever was and whatever is, is the teacher 
in the economy of God. I don't have to venture out to explore something way out there. I only have to pay attention to the ordinary reality of my journey and what it is I actually lived. And there find is the presence of God seeking to teach me. We should probably, we wanted to really allow some time for, for yeah. questions and comments. Yeah, we've kind of sped our way through <laughs> this material, but we've got a few minutes to close with. Um, I'm a bit frustrated because we wanted to get to the sex piece. <laughs> you know? Um, but what we've tried to do here and what we've talked about is to set up, in a sense, what it is that leads to a relationship in which physical intimacy can flourish. And I think if in any of these arenas, and particularly in the arena of our sexual intimacy, from time to time along in the journey, we may need help. Mm -hmm. Seek help. You have good pastors in this church. You have good elders. There's people in this church that are equipped to listen. I know Emily has come to our Soul Care Institute. I know Emily can listen, but she has how many kids now? You have four kids now? And, <laughs> and a puppy. And a puppy, so now you've got six. Um, uh, but, but make yourself accessible. That perhaps there's a friend in this church. You know, the truth of the matter is, a friend who listens is as clinically effective <laughs> in the healing of a soul as a trained clinician. Because what matters in the healing of a human soul is not expertise of knowledge, but the capacity of trust between one another in a relationship. If you have a good friend, tell your story. Don't, don't kind of hide it away. Make this commitment to be courageous and to step towards one another in honesty and hope. Mm -hmm. So I gotta quit. Questions or comments that you have? We have 15 minutes and we want to give some time for that. Mm -hmm. Thoughts, reflections you're having. Yes, and there's no question that's too hard. Yeah. That's very, very, very clear. I, and I think it's not either or again. I think it's both. both and. I think the truth of the matter is we do marry someone who can activate our deepest wound. They, they just have that gift. You know, they, they can do that. And at the same time, that's a reality. The current experience is a real experience that's hurtful. But it's tapping into something in the past. And when that happens, the present experience really gets loaded up with stuff, with some feelings that kind of get a couple stuck. But at the same time, there's a projective process that does happen in which if my wound is not healed, I'm anticipating actually from that place of woundedness that here, here it'll come again, it'll come again. That's why it's critically important in our marital relationship to work on healing our wounds and if we're open in our story to talk about our wounds, I think it's, we think it's one of the critical issues 
where we can pray for one another for healing of woundedness. And if we're clear about, again, self-clarity, if we're clear about wounding, um, we can be clear about not doing certain things that may activate that injury in our relationship. And sometimes, too, we're looking at our spouse to fill up that hole that was left from that wound. Yeah. And we're expecting them to yeah. do can something sh- they can can't do. Can I about your startle reflex? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. See, S- Sally grew up in a family system that was not a very reliable family system no. emotionally. So when we were first married, I just come in the house. I'm out, you know. I wouldn't say anything. I just show up because it's my home, right? I would turn the corner and Sally would gasp. You know, she'd be scared that she, you scared me. I go, I scared you. I've been married ten years. What's yeah. the point? It's me. <laughs> I'm, I got my issues, but I'm not a real scary guy, you know. But S- Sally grew up in an in a family system that was very unpredictable. So surprising her by just showing up, or even if it's the time I typically show up and I don't announce myself, Mm -hmm. she's most likely to have a real strong startle reflex, and then we have to overcome that. She has to remind me to tell. So now when I enter the house, I say, it's me, I'm home. And that's okay, that works. Because of her wound. Mm So that's what I meant by understanding our wounds sometimes, we can take action to help with the healing of the wound. That's a simple case. And I never even knew I had that startle reflex until we married. I didn't, I didn't realize. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, two, two thoughts. Remember yes. the exercise I said? That in yeah. the exercise, when I'm talking about me, about my story, then my spouse, Sally, is listening, and she's just curious about that. She's cur- Even though it may be activating me, I'm going to stay differentiated now. I'm going to put my feelings mm-hmm. to a side, and I'm going to stay with what I'm hearing because my turn is coming. Mm-hmm. And perhaps I can even say, well, well, you just said really activated this, and I'm not blaming you, but here's some things that are going on, and then your spouse is just listening to you. And if, in fact, I find that problematic to kind of get to that differentiated space, um, I may be struggling a bit, and then I may need a third party to kind of help me navigate that a little bit. But there's two books you can read that'll be very, very helpful for you if I'm having a hard time being emotionally differentiated. Um, One is that book I talked about, uh, Emotional Agility. And the other book, I can't think of the name, but I will. It's it's on internal family systems. Ah, but I will have it by the end of the day for you, Gal. The the point is, what what you can do is learn some things about how I can be self-reflective about my feelings. And so I have the spirit-controlled part of me that can observe my feelings. This is key for emotional management in marriage. 
Boundaries I, of your soul. Boundaries for your soul. Thank for your you. soul. Ba boundaries for your soul by two Mills and somebody else. Boundaries for your soul. Really which, good. Which teaches me how to be self-reflective about my emotions without being absorbed in my emotions, particularly when my emotions are very, very strong. Very good question. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. <clears throat> right. Yeah, okay, good. Part of it is a practice, right? A, a lot of what we said in terms of taking responsibility is this notion of intentionality. Intentionality is anchored in the gifted capacity that God has given us we call volition. So here's the challenge. The challenge can be to start my day by, by just stepping back and saying, 10 or 15 minutes, what do I feel I need? Now, when you start out, you may end up by noontime saying, I don't need that at all. <laughs> but that's okay. Because you've begun to work at trying to name. And when actually you eliminate some things, you know that's not your need. So now you can go back and say, well, what is it I need? But it's actually the intentional act of reflecting on what I might need and learning to give voice to it. That's critically important. It's coupled closely with what I want, my desire. And so if your husband asks you, what would you like to do? Be, are you, do you feel free to name that? Or is that, it's hard to know what I desire. Yeah, kind of. I'm, I, do you, well, maybe not. Maybe I'm not asking you. <laughs> Let that go. But, but, but to know what I desire is often related to what I need. So if your husband says, well, what would you like to do? And I hope he asks you that from time to time. That you be sure to declare what it is you need or desire. It's more about being intentional than it is about anything else. And husband, you don't let her pass it off by saying, I don't know, yeah. and just you give up. No, hold her accountable yeah. to, in a kind, of, gentle, loving way. Kind of say, yeah, what do you think, what do you think we need? No, I, I really want to know what yeah, you need. 2020 or, isn't that old yet, you know, so we can say, what, what do you think we need as a couple for 2020? What, what do we need to attend to? What's the one thing we need to attend to in our relationship? So it's a, it's a willingness more to be declarative than anything else. That's usually the challenge in naming needs, is that I've come out of a family system where I really didn't have the freedom mm -hmm. to be declarative. Mm -hmm. And it's learning to be declarative, even about what I want, because sometimes I won't get that right. I, we, we say to people, well, just declare what you want. Just start. Now, it may be crazy, so you can't do that. So, you know, no, that's off the table. You know, you may want to buy a million dollars. I want a million dollars of light, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I only make 60,000, but that's a year. So that's not going to get it done. So nice, nice want, but let's be more realistic, you know? What is it you want? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. 
Yes. <coughs> yeah, very good question. Right. Mm -hmm. I think, um, first of all, we want to be age appropriate. You know, the children are certain ages, if that's in place. I think one of the things we often say when we're working with a couple and we're working on family of origin, look at, we're not listening, we're not interested in saying, you know, throwing anybody under the bus, you know. Um, mm -hmm. I have an education fund and a counseling fund for my children. You know, <laughs> I, uh, uh, be because of my stuff, right? So this is not about, I, I, love, I love my parents. I, you know, I, I love them to this day. It take, took me a while to get there. Um, but there's a deep affection for who they were. But they had real flaws. And here were some of the flaws that were really deeply hurtful. But I think if we can hold that in context of recognizing we, we still love them. It doesn't mean they're horrible, horrible people, unless some of the things were really egregious. Now, that's a, that's a different program, and it's not possible to have a relationship with them. But I think it's appropriate to disclose that with children um, because secrets actually define what a family can be. My grandparents on my mother's side were never married. They were from immigrants. So no one ever talked. Hey, Grandma, when did, where did you guys meet? That was off the table. Um, and Grandma had several children before she married my grandfather. They were never married. So very little was spoken in that family system. And that carried over a legacy into our family system and how my mother and father did their life. Hence my avoidance. <laughs> but, yeah, get after the secrets. We didn't include that, but families that have secrets, we need to move past the secrecy. Yes, sir. So the things that you think and do are disconnected or dissonant from what you're actually feeling? The things that you think are disconnected from the way you're acting. Like you're faking it? Yeah, or like you can explain, I mean, you can explain why you shouldn't be feeling the way that you are. Oh, you that way. yeah. It's like your cognition saying don't, yes. Yeah, I would, I would want to say, my, my take is, I believe in our story is the way forward. The, everybody, everybody's way forward is embedded in their story, if I understand my story well enough. And the way forward is, is not to cut off those feelings, mm -hmm. but rather to stay with those feelings. And just give yourself permission to pray, to reflect, to again, to be curious about those feelings, because feelings are data. Uh, now, it may be that a certain feeling persists because typically what we've experienced in our work, a feeling will persist because the person has been deeply injured and that feeling is associated with that injury. And because of the depth of that injury, which again, if it's a deep injury, a child will tend to minimize it. It's the work of really reflecting deeply on that injury and that wound 
and attending to the attending emotion. Oftentimes that helps me kind of resolve that feeling that seems to linger and persist and be such a part of me. Yeah. There, there's a, um, I, we often say in our work, something never comes from nothing. Mm -hmm. The only time that happened is when God spoke the creation into existence. But everything else, something comes from something. So, um, yeah, just attend to that, dear friend. Attend to that. Don't, don't minimize it. Don't short-circuit it. Give yourself permission, even though it may have been a number of years that this feeling has been there. Something's cooking. Thank you. Very good question. Yes, sir. Hypothetically. Could be your cousin. Could be your cousin. Yeah. The book to read is by Gelstead, and it's called Calming the Emotional Storm. And it's a book that gives you an indication about, I'm not a Christian author, but it gives you an indication, it gives you very practical ways by which you manage exaggerated affect. And fundamentally what she says, <clears throat> I have to know which emotion gets most exaggerated, and then I have to have a pre-game strategy for when it shows up. If I'm going to show up, if I'm going to think I'm going to imagine, manage an exaggerated emotion when it just shows up, I'm not going to manage it. I actually have to have a cognitive plan and a behavioral plan. And Jelstead in her book, uh, Managing the Emotional Storm, helps persons kind of create a plan for that intensity of emotion. So again, I have cognition, thinking, I have emotion or volition, choices, decisions, and then I have my feelings and volition and cognition are to help with the management of exaggerated emotionality. And some of us just feel a lot. We're, we got intense feelings and, you know, brother, uh, God bless you in the journey and me and any number of other people. You know, it, it, just pray for your wife. And <laughs> I don't mean to be facetious on that one. I shouldn't be, sorry. Uh, well, we're at 12 noon. Thank you so much for your attentiveness and your questions. It's been our delight to be with you mm -hmm. and we pray the Lord. We'll close with a brief prayer, asking God to be gracious to us. Lord, in your mercy, we have come. There's been lots of words, and you have a purpose for each person here in each relationship. We pray by your grace that this time would be fruitful in growing both a deep and an abiding affection for you, for all you've done for us, and that our marital relationship may be one of great joy and delight as we live together and love in the ordinary of all our days. Grant us these graces in Christ. Amen. A great ministry. If you see a lot of churches on the news that are in crisis, uh, often behind the scenes, these two and Jim, uh, and which Jim's wife? Same. Joy. Which, joy. Jim and Joy uh, are there uh, helping come alongside pastors and staff in the midst of uh, suicide and crisis and all kinds of things. So I want to pray for them. I just want to say to you guys, um, we met uh, these two in 2013 when we were in the midst of uh, just a real low point in our lives, and uh, we're beginning to come to terms with a lot of these things that they've shared, and these are big, uh, big things to process, and um, 
I know for us, it's been, you know, seven, eight years of just working through stuff, and we're just at the beginning. We feel like we're just at the beginning of so much of this, and this is not typically what you encounter when you go to a counselor, maybe. Maybe it's just take a prescription and, uh, you know, call me in the morning, or take, you know, take two Bible verses and call me in the morning. Uh, this is deep work, and, uh, and so it can be really unnerving, disorienting to go and begin to think about this. And so I, w- I just want to encourage you guys, um, we're all on this journey. We, Inland and I, have been in counseling with, uh, with Rich and Sally for the last several years, and it's been extremely helpful. And we want to provide that as well to you and just say there are others that are trained in these same ways of thinking, holistic uh, thinking and biblical, deeply biblical thinking, but also deeply uh, human in the way that they talk, very realistic, that we just want to say if that's you and that's where you're at in your journey, maybe you're just in a good place and you're like, I want to do work while it's good before things maybe go off the rails. Um, we do have resources, and we'd love to be able to point, that, point you in that direction, uh, whether it's, as Rich said, our elders or staff members or just other counselors in the area, we're keeping a list and compiling a list. They also are very humble, but have lots of opportunities for you to learn. So they're not trying to be self-promoting, but they have something called a deeper journey, uh, which goes on a pretty regular, like quarterly uh, basis. You go down for an overnight, spend some time talking through these things, work through your story. The Soul Care Institute, something that Emily's been through, it's very affordable. I mean, this stuff that would cost tens of thousands of dollars, they make available uh, at very, very cheap, um, and it's close. So Country Lake Retreat Center down in Henryville, it's like an hour and 45 minutes away. Uh, they're doing these things on a regular basis as well as, you know, other things that, that are there. So I encourage you to go to their website, come talk to us. We'd love to help uh, point you in that direction so you can get the support that you need. Um, but uh, again, thank you guys for being here. This is part of our, the reason we invited them to come is just because they've impacted our lives so much. As we think about establishing uh, better, more robust Uh, invitation to love one another, to care for one another, to bear each other. Six says, um, we need to. We realize we some concepts and do some work in learning what it actually means to offer that kind of care. Because you, as you can see, this is not simple, um, but it is simple in the sense that all of us can do it. And so we want to be able to kind of develop those muscles as a church, so that we can better care for one another uh, in authentic community. So. I would love for us to pray for you guys. Would you guys come down and sure. just, um, we'd love to just uh, pray over y'all and, uh, and then send you back on your way. Thank uh, you, Brent. Yeah. We forgot, we were going to bring in the books, The Relational Soul that uh, Rich wrote. We forgot to bring it. We're, that's not our goal. But if you were interested in reading more, a lot of what just we say ask, is in I'll that go book. Go get the box of books. Yeah. <laughs> $10, right? $10, whatever. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Lord, we just love you. We thank you for Rich and Sally and Jim and Joy and just their ministry through Crosspoint. God, it's just been such, through the power of the Holy Spirit, just a life-giving wellspring to so many, Lord. And I thank you for the hard work they've done. I thank you for their ability to be used by you, to um, invite us to take responsibility for our own life, Lord, and just... Um, the courageous task that that is, Lord, and we just want to run from it. We want to, just like Adam and Eve, we want to run and hide, and we want to blame, and God, just the invitation to come to you, Lord, with that. Um, I thank you, God, for Rich and Sally, just the way that they've taught taught me personally, Lord, what it means to be in Christ, Lord, and to sit in some of these emotions and feelings and have courage to um, encounter them and Mm -hmm. to take them to you, God, and to hurl them at you at times, God, and so I 
I thank you for their ministry. I pray that you would bless it. I pray, God, that you would multiply it, God. I pray that the good seed and the investment that's been sown into our hearts, God, that it would reap a, an abundant harvest as we um, have courage to take responsibility for our life, Lord, and ultimately to trust you. And so I pray your blessing over them. I pray for their family. Um, and just pray for protection over them and just against the principalities that want to, to hinder this work, God, that, that ultimately invites us to you and draws us to you. So I just pray for courage and strength in the journey, and I, I just praise God um, for their life and their ministry. And um, we just are so humbled and honored that we get to participate um, sharing this journey together. In Jesus' name, amen.